again, friends, and you are my friends. And welcome to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership! Oh, you snuck it in. The best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, the most influential wrestling podcast. Call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. I wish you'd get more confidence. The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? And I am very happy to be joined here today for our very special third anniversary spectacular by our most popular co-host, Mr. Jim Cornette. Jim, welcome back to the show. Yeah, first, you got to get more confidence. <laughs> Secondly, you got you and, and how, how many people do you have chained up to that audio board now? Just playing these. My God, it's the morning zoo. There's a few. I got a few Dennis ones. Let me play you the Dennis ones I have. So I have... What are you trying to prove? And then I have him saying that with a little more attitude. So what are you trying to prove? <laughs> I don't know which one I like better. And then this is the classic. You are nothing but a bottom of the card jobber. <laughs> which he said, but, I think, the Thunderbolt Patterson or Jim Wilson on uh, Morton Downey Jr. But the, the, the what are you trying to prove should always come in that order because he says it with more vehemence. In in the second one, so he's really he's really wanting to know at that what point, and it's just prove? yeah. So what are you trying to prove? See, <laughs> it's just it's if you'd ask the first one first and the second one second, if you didn't get the right answer, it's just it's cra- it's crazy. Let's see if you can identify who these voices actually are. Yo yo yo, what's up? What's up? What's up? Oh good lord! One more time. Yo yo yo, what's up? What's up? What's up? Who is that? Doctor Miglano. Oh my God! Well, he's he's pretending he's from New Jersey. What I could recognize the voice, but I didn't think I would hear Yo Yo Yo. What about this one? Let's spend the night together. Yeah, <laughs> Kevin. Okay, <laughs> that one's very good. That one's good. What about? Well, this one you would know. Are you a sissy? See, this just like the. Uh, yeah, I was here when he said that. Well, just like the. What are you trying to prove? I have two of these. I have the slower one. Are you a sissy? And then he gets to the point. Are you a sissy? See? And then, I think I see a sissy, Lance. Now, when he came in for that, that was the and first... By, and by the, by the way, I'd only heard, I hadn't heard Mike Leno's voice in so long since the last time he booked me in Japan. Who would have thought in, 2000, <laughs> in 2018, Pampiro Furpo's daughter would remind me on Twitter that I was once booked in Japan by a dentist from California without my knowledge. The good times, the good old days. Well, we'll have more about Dr. Mike Leno <laughs> later on in the show. I didn't mean to stun you into silence Ho- there. Hopefully even less. No, Dr. <laughs> Mike Leno. And- well, here we are for the anniversary show, and now it is time for the top 10. And, of course, the top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records. And usually this time of the show, we talk about one of the great artists on Ramsor Records, and we've talked about so many great ones this past year. But something different this week, Dolph Ramsor sent in a note, and I want to read this right here. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season. I am thankful for music and the times I got to witness the greatness of beautiful Bobby Eaton live in the squared circle. I am hoping all 605 listeners are able to do two things during the holidays. Please do yourself a favor and play a Johnny Cash record, preferably on vinyl, for a kid. Also, please take a kid to a live wrestling match, preferably an independent wrestling match. So very cool there, Dolph Ramsor with a Holiday greeting for all the 605ers, and uh, here in the show, I do want to say thank you to Dolph and Ramsar Records for not only sponsoring this show, but also being a really great friend to me and the show, and I very much appreciate it, and here's looking forward to more and more fun things 
in the future. But with that, let's get going with the top 10. Number 10 in the top 10, Jim, Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. And uh, we're still trying to get Brother Midnight back on the show. I believe he has resurfaced. I heard that Marty Gold recently ran into him, but he has been hiding from the government for one reason or another. But I think we have finally tracked him down. So I'm optimistic that here going into year four, he will be back on the show. Any thoughts on that, Jim? Oh, I, I didn't know where you were. <laughs> the regulator, innovator, dominator, creator, updater, the imitator, assassinator, baby. If I if I was responsible for that, I'd be hiding from the government also. I really I don't know how you found him the first time. And I think for his own good, he should probably stay undercover. I think that a lot of people get enjoyment out of his old promos and his old videos. But let's just say someone like you doesn't. I'm curious, you know, when you go back to before you were in the business, who's your favorite wrestler that most people would go, oh, come on, that guy's terrible. But you said, no, I really like him. Well, you know, Jimmy Valiant was God when I was 16, 17 years old. And but the thing is, today's smart fan would go, oh, my God, his work was terrible because he wasn't working like everybody else. He was working like Jimmy Valiant and Jimmy Valiant didn't work. And it worked because he was over. In that environment, he, he, it, 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 I mean, they drew huge money. The Valiant Brothers were one of the few tag teams that was ever in the top 10 box office attractions for the year. It was, it was, it was the Midnight Express, Road Warriors, Rocca and Perez were the only number one box office attraction of the year as a tag team ever. But the Valiant Brothers were huge, but then, and he was doing kind of something like the handsome Jimmy we got in Memphis in Indianapolis right about that time. But when he came here, the the series with Lawler, the promos, the fucking violence of the whole thing, and then he just started experimenting with shit in more than one way and started, to, and handsome Jimmy just grew. And over the next six years, Jimmy Valiant was so over Yes, he got out of shape at that point in time, and yet he was not having four-star matches in the ring as a hip tosser and arm dragger. They were these goddamn wild-ass Memphis main events that people liked and that he could fucking do, and he was over as himself, and they brought him back from the Carolinas one time for a six-man tag in the summer of 83, and he saw it sold out, 11,600, just because Jimmy Valiant was back on the card. He did a promo and sent it in on tape that weekend. Um, and he did a couple of times he sold out to Coliseum. One time they sold out to Coliseum because Jimmy Valiant was going to be back against Kamala. And that's when he got sick in the airport in Charlotte and couldn't be there. And uh, they almost had a riot. I don't know that story. What, what happened there? There was almost a riot. Um, yeah, they, they, uh, the people wanted to see Jimmy Valiant and Kamala. And I think they got, uh, Lawler and Dundee against Kamala and JJ Dillon. I mean, it's not like they were setting shit on fire, but they were not happy. If Jimmy Valiant was advertised for one of his few appearances at that point in time, and he didn't show up, which happened once, maybe twice, holy shit, people were fucking hot. And he was a big draw into 84 and 85, coming back from Charlotte. Uh, but it, that would be a guilty pleasure now, because people would look at his squash matches on TBS and go, oh, fuck, Jimmy Valiant. Was, well, it, it's, it's all context. So many guys came into Memphis and got a shot at Lawler, and so many guys... Really, never really came back and got a main event run again. Why do you think Jimmy Valiant connected so well that he did resonate for so many years? Well, the 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 run with Lawler was a great way to kick it off, and they they did probably over a period of twenty weeks. They probably wrestled fourteen or fifteen of those times, and and at least in Memphis and in Louisville, because Jimmy was coming in back and forth from from Indianapolis. He had a run for Bruiser up there also. 
Uh, but the promos were fucking classic, and those matches were so memorable. But then the promos were so good, and Jimmy was so over the top and so outrageous that the people started getting with him, and that's when they switched him babyface. And by, you know, summer of 78, he and Lawler and, and uh, Dundee were the six-man super team, and he was one of the top three babyfaces. And then he could go back and forth. because They could just do it. Normally, it'd bury a guy. But he could go back and forth. <laughs> he had been a heel with Lawler when Lawler switched heel right before he broke his leg. And then they needed a top babyface. They switched Jimmy back babyface. But then they switched him back heel later on in the year when Lawler was ready to come back. But it, it didn't diminish him because he was always kind of crazy, no matter which side he was on. You brought up Rocca and Perez earlier. I'm curious your thoughts about Perez's induction or, or lack thereof in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. He's not in there, and a lot of people have said he shouldn't be in there. He was just Rocca's partner, and Rocca was the draw. How do you feel about it? You know, honest to God, I just watched two Rocca and Perez matches on the, the classic DVDs that were released on VHS in the 80s, but somebody sent me DVD copies of them, and I just popped them in to watch them. And, you know, here's the thing. It worked because the formula was Rocca had been the top guy in the business, or one of the top guys in the business, pretty much since they stole him from Houston in 49, right? He got on the yeah. Chicago TV, and he got over huge in New York, the ethnic draw there, but he was big as a flyer, as an acrobat in Chicago on that TV. <clears throat> and But it, it was running its course because I watched a couple of his matches too, and, and he was limited. He did kind of the same shit. But everybody sold for him. I mean, they bumped and flew, and he could throw five or six drop kicks just real quick in a row. He was freaky like that for a guy that was still that body weight. But what I'm saying is eventually Rocca as a single was getting old because he was somewhat limited if you'd seen it, right? But then they, they give him this young 20-year-old good-looking Puerto Rican kid that is athletic and can do some shit. But in the match that I saw, it was against uh, – um, Kurt Von Hess and uh, God damn it, uh, the uh, the Mighty Atlas. Oh yeah, yeah. What was his name? Um, the Mighty Atlas. Well, but it was he had a real name. Anyway, the point is they beat the fucking kid up. They put Rock over. They both fly for him. The kid comes in, does a spot or two. They beat the piss out of him. He finally gets a tag, and Rocka makes a comeback on both of them and beats both of them. And it and this was the formula. It, it, I saw two of their matches at random over all the matches they had, so I'm pretty sure that was the formula. So, I, you know, I'm honestly thinking that was they put the kid in to fill the spot, and he later on became a wonderful worker, and I'm not saying anything about that, and he was a huge star in Puerto Rico, but at that point, it was, it was Rocca's formula so he could beat everybody to just make him even more special than he had been before. I think that's what worked in all of the big population centers in the Northeast. So you're saying you agree with him not being in the Hall of Fame? I'm saying it, it on his own. Uh, no, as the team, yes, should be, but not on just on his own. Do you think there should be dual inductions if someone is a significant single star and a significant tag team star? And, you know, if you don't well, point out the tag team, the other guy doesn't get any mention whatsoever. Maybe... Uh, well, there should be some type of dual induction for a poor guy like Miguel Perez, who honestly deserves it as part of the team, but maybe not a single. But then Rocco would be in twice. But, hey, he was huge. He was just plain big. Yeah, how many times has Eric Clapton in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, there you go. Yeah, like eight bands. But anyway, yeah, so that's, there uh, you go. It should be teams or bands. That's right. Well, that's number 10, Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. Number nine this week in the top 10, Jim. 
Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Unfortunately, we have no news. We have hit a wall. The last person we knew of who we were in communication with who knew who Yo Mamba was was Terry Garvin Sims, who unfortunately passed away earlier in the year. So we did not with, get to Without hear. revealing the secret? He was due to come on the show to reveal the secret. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just like a heel. <laughs> Even to the end. Well, he knew. Marcoline knows and Marcoline's MIA. Maybe he's hanging out with Brother Midnight. I really don't know. But we are still searching the mystery. Who is your mama? Bill Dundee has no memory. Lawler, of course, doesn't remember anything. <laughs> so we're still trying to find out. The rockers don't know. But you know what? You know what? Somebody that's coming up on the experience as a guest may remember. Randy Hales. He may. We'll see. It'll be an interesting test of uh, his uh, skills and knowledge to see if he knows. But it does uh, make me want to ask you a question. The person who would have been shooting ringside, Jim, would have been Sam Lowe. Sam Lowe passed away. What would have happened to his collection of photos? Do you know? I do not know. I, and I think that would have been the time period for Sam Lowe to be the photographer, yes. Uh, Robert Reed did some photography in 83, 84-ish, but I don't know. I think Sam was more regular at that point in time. And I don't know what would have happened to his. He lived up in, or was from, I don't know where he ended up living, but he was from the Jackson uh, or Lexington area, like the Gilberts. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe his mother's still around. Maybe they're in his mom's house. That's where all of us old wrestling photographers used to keep our shit. On the topic of wrestling mysteries, do you have any? Like, what's your biggest one to this day that you still want to know what exactly happened? <laughs> or who somebody was? Um, beyond Mil Moscaris. Actually, I, I, can't, I can't reveal on the air. The only, the only person that I have asked anyone in the last 20 years who was so-and-so, I can't tell the story. Because it, it, it involves a member of a famous promoter's family that was related by marriage, and his relation to the wrestling business ended right about the time his marriage did. Ah, okay. And and I'd never seen this name in any uh, wrestling area before or since anywhere else, and, and, and that was the answer to that question. But more more details when we're off the air. Okay. Um, and I'm going to make a joke. <laughs> I think I cracked that case right now. But that's number nine, Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. You cowardly dog. I will tell you more about him later. Totally awesome. Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Number eight this week in the top ten. <laughs> Jim. <laughs> it's Edgar Winter. Do you remember when you no showed your tour of Japan? I thought you were going to ask me if I remembered the 21st night of September. Well, it's the Black Scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's obvious. Well, I got to ask you, I brought Doesn't up... Doesn't everyone know that's the Black Scorpion? You brought up Dr. Mike Lano earlier, and uh, you brought up the... Tor- Is he the Black Scorpion? There's a rumor, and I believe it started uh, in Mike Lano's house, that he may be the Black Scorpion. But on the topic of Dr. Mike Lano, he's not in the top ten anymore. We took him out a long time <laughs> ago. But we have some news, and Scott Cornish, the noted humorist, found this, and I couldn't believe it. I said, I got to bring this on the show. And... Jim, I had sent you an email. I'm going to ask you now to open this email. I had previously told you not to open it, not to look at it, not to read it. But now I'm telling you to please open this. Okay, hold on. I'm trying to stuff my phone in my pocket so it won't sound (laughs) loud. I have opened the email. Jim, what we are looking at here is 
a copy, a excuse me, a column by Georgia Macropolis fan forum, fans forum, excuse me, with a, yes. no, no apostrophe over the S. Fans forum, popular wrestling, May 1976. We believe, based on our research, Jim, we have found the earliest known example of this, which is big news for wrestling fans everywhere. Uh, you see that I have the whole page there. If you scroll down a little bit, you will see what I would like you to read. If you could start with the paragraph that begins with WFIA Wrestling Convention, and you will end in the uh, next column, but try not to. Aha, yes, the WFIA Wrestling Convention, which is to be held July 15th through 17th, 1976, at the Phillips House, 12th in Baltimore, Kansas City, Missouri. Convention reservations are to be sent to Chairwoman Diane Devine of P.O. Box 1902 Bechtold Station, St. Louis. I'm sure it's no longer her address. 63118. And will be $20 per person. Only 20 bucks for the convention back in those days. Price includes your wrestling ticket and the awards banquet ticket. And the wrestling not, ticket. Wow. Yes. Why not drop Diane a line or two for further details? Don't forget the self-addressed stamped envelope, folks. And, of course, that's you, you would go to the convention. They'd have a big wrestling show. They'd send some of the talent over. You gave them awards and everything. It was great. Great deal. It goes on to say, Diane also informed me that in my last column, I stated that the black and white photo of John the Golden Greek Tolos was taken by Mike Leno. I just assumed that since the photo was sent to me by Mike, and I know he takes excellent photographs, I just assumed that it was his, but Diane tells me it was taken by L.A. photographer Theo Errett. <laughs> I stand corrected. Sorry, Theo. By the way, I haven't heard from the John Tolos fan club in a long while. I sure hope nothing is wrong. Haven't heard from the Briscoe Brothers fan club lately. Please inform me if there is any trouble. Jim, that is the earliest known example of Mike Leno sending in someone else's photos. In this case, maybe the greatest wrestling photographer of all time, Theo Errett, and pretending they're his. Yes, you know, as a matter of fact, if you order the Wrestling Gold line, my warehouse find from JimCornette.com, the $9 classic wrestling DVD sale, you will see some of the photos because when Kit Parker did the, the releases, he asked, do you need some pictures? I can send some pictures. Oh, no, I've got the guy from the magazine. Right. Okay. I, whoever, right. It turned out it was Leno. In this case, he didn't send pictures that other people had taken. He sent pictures he had taken and just claimed they were different people so he could get them on the covers. So there's a couple of pictures on some of these DVDs of people that are not even on the goddamn show because of Mike Leno hornswoggling Kit Parker into. Yeah. So there you go. What did you think of Theo Errett? I'm a big Theo Errett fan. I said he's the best of all time. Obviously, it's a, something that's a personal opinion, but I love his work. What do you think of his work? Well, my personal opinion is I'm the best of all time, but no, um, especially the black and white. He was great in black and white, yes. and that's most of what he did that we saw because the magazines were all black and white in those days. But I, I, I thought that. You know, it was just, it was a classic atmosphere too, with the Olympic auditorium and the way that it photographed. And then the, you know, and they always had a nice looking ring in Los Angeles. So the, those, uh, those, those shots were cool. Yeah. So once again, news here, the first known example, this is from popular wrestling, May, <laughs> 1976, Mike Leno sending in someone else's photos and claiming they're his own. So I think this is a big moment here. They'll update. With but at least it, it was a picture of the guy he said it was. So there yes. we got that going for us. We do have that going for us, which is nice. And that is number eight, the Black Scorpion. Number seven this week in the top ten is disappointed Lance Russell. Oh, when you get that stupid pool out of here, I don't want to see you around here anymore. 
Jim, we spent so much time talking about the moments that made Lance disappointed on Memphis TV. As a fan growing up, what was the most disappointing moment for you watching Memphis wrestling? Where oh, God. That you were just like, oh, come on. It was one of the times that Lawler had sw- – I think – I can't remember, but it may have been the time that he switched back heel in 79. But it was uh, the greatest Lanceism because he came out and, and he had always been kind of Lawler's cheerleader. Because, you know, he was the kid that sent the pictures in, right? And that's and then he had brought him on the show just as a, as a fan that was drawing the pictures of the Monday Night Matches in the Ellis Auditorium. But then as he became a wrestler and they, he came back after that run in Alabama and they started pushing him and Jim White and Sam Bass, you know, Lance would talk about him like heels and he would, you know, uh, he would get heat on him. But when Lawler started that run for the title... Lance started softening up in 74 and it was like the Howard Cosell, Muhammad Ali thing where well, he is a hometown guy. And, you know, you can't, you can't deny how good he is. I don't know why he needs to take those shortcuts. Right. So Lance had always been, you know, sympathetic to, to Lawler, but then finally he switches heel that time and Lance comes out. Now, let me tell you something, Jerry. I'm just going to tell you right now. I've, I've set back and I've made excuses for you, pal. And I've, I've said things in the past. I've said, well, just look at the bright side of Jerry. But I'll tell you what, I, even though I've made the excuses, Lawler, you're just you're just a darned egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> and Lance turns on Lawler and automatically is like, oh, my God, he told him off. Oh, it, it was classic. I made excuses for you, Jerry, but there's just no sense in this, Padna. It doesn't sound like any of this made you disappointed at all. But no, I was never disappointed in Lance Russell. The only time I was disappointed in Lance Russell is when he took a vacation and wasn't on the show. Did you like Dave Brown when he was by himself? Oh, yeah. Well, it, I like Dave, but it just it it wasn't right. It wasn't right. with and, and Lance, okay, when Dave would be off once or twice a year, Lance doing it by himself, okay, because he did the, the stand-ups at the Coliseum, and he did the Coliseum commentary by himself. So you, it, it, it kind of worked, but you always, even Dave knew that it just wasn't right when Lance was around. Even the first thing he'd say is Lance is on vacation this week, but he'll be back next week or whatever. And, and just make sure to reassure people so that they could watch the rest of the program without panicking that something had happened to Lance. Well, that's number seven this week in the top 10 disappointed Lance Russell. Tell him in Mexican just to get out of here. <laughs> Jim, <laughs> number six this week in the top 10, always very popular, orgasmic Larry Nelson. No. And now the short form. What's the stipulation? Are we having fun, people? Jim, Orgasmic Larry remains so popular for moments like that, moments like this. Oh, jeez, oh, gravity! Or, of course, this. Look out, Barry Or this. He didn't blink, he didn't fall, he did nothing. There's nothing but great clip after great clip, but later on in the show, we're going to talk with Polish Joe about the AWA Team Challenge Series pilot episode that recently emerged. And Eric Bischoff is on there as one of the announcers or as the actual ringside interviewer. And I asked him, I said, if Larry Nelson had not fled in the middle of the night, would he have been in that role? Would that have been his job? And he said, yeah, most definitely it would have been Larry and he probably would have made it a little better. It would have been Larry there. So it makes me wonder, do you think if Larry Nelson had not left the AWA, there's a chance he could have been the one to lead the NWO years later? Uh, Almost none. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Brian, and I'll, I'll explain why here, because, uh, no, um, my God, they probably, uh, knowing Hall and Nash, they would have left Larry Nelson drunk with his feet and hands duct taped naked on the side of an interstate somewhere. 
That's just Tuesday for Larry. I think he would have left them. <laughs> you got to read his book. <laughs> did, did he used to spend the summers with Herb Abrams? Uh, no, no, but I think Herb, I'm surprised Herb didn't try to get him. Although Larry may have uh, not survived that run if he had gone to Herb Abrams, UWF. Uh, but that is number six, orgasmic Larry Nelson. Look out, Baron Von Reisky! What's the stipulation? Number five this week in the top ten is one of the most popular characters ever. An old friend of yours, Jim. Old lady, Mrs. Spencer. <laughs> I think she's talking to you. <laughs> I, it's hell, a- you son of a bitch, you. Oh. It's so good to hear from Mrs. Spencer on occasion. Has anybody tried that number recently? Uh, no. I've not given it out to anyone, and I don't know if anyone would realize what your old number was if they just changed one number that they would find her. So well, I- it's been 25 years, and she had to be as old as Methuselah then, so I'm, I guess the, uh, she's probably gone on to her reward as any good Christian woman who calls people homosexual <laughs> motherfuckers. Uh, would obviously be going to the land of milk and honey. Homosexual Jim. Yeah, th- there was a, a large uh, rage inside her toward the homosexual community because when people prank called her, that's right where she went. That was the worst place she could go first. And then, and then, motherfucker, motherfucker, I hope you die in the next 30 seconds was, was the way I knew that she went to church regularly. Yeah, which one is that? Hold on, is it this one? Wake up, you stupid jackass. You fuck son of a bitch, you. I hope you die in the next 30 seconds. Oh, I found it. You motherfucking bastard, you. You forgot about the speaking in tongues. Um, Yes. There's no way she's alive still. There's no way. It's just impossible. But the, do you think that maybe the phone number would have been passed on? Typically, when people died in Tennessee, do they pass on their phone number? Does someone move in and just take over? Well, no, it could have been her family could still live at the old home place, as my Aunt Lola used to say, over at the old home place where they've always lived. So we should try that some because for the folks, the uninitiated, Dennis Corluzzo tried to call me in Tennessee, but he messed up one number of my number and got Mrs. Spencer, who was very rude to him, Upon hearing that he was asking for Jim, there's no damn Jim here. And from that point forward, she became an early viral celebrity because Dennis and everybody in the Northeastern independent wrestling scene began to call her and ask for Jim on a regular basis. I think, you know, I don't know whether anybody ever heard from her after that call that I made to her where when she answered the phone, I said, hi, this is Jim. Has anybody called for me? <laughs> and it, I think her head just exploded like the fucking, you know, pumpkin coming off the scaffold and boom, there you go. Well, my favorite thing is there's one call and we played this on the show, obviously a long time ago, where she's talking to who she believes is a police officer. And I won't say who the person really is because he actually has a legitimate job right now. Uh, I don't think he wants anyone to know he was involved with any of this. But, impersonating a police officer taking a report for prank calls that he himself had, had a hand in perpetrating. She says that Jim is the harassment man. <laughs> but that makes no sense. So that she thinks yeah. Jim is calling for Jim all the time? I only called her once. I never called her again. Well, you are the harassment man. But with that, number five this week in the top ten, the old lady, Mrs. Spencer. <laughs> what a way to say goodbye than that uh number four this week in the top 10 jim this is one that has become popular kevin of course we're talking about the character kevin and uh it's a take on kevin von eric where we play on some of his eccentric qualities as they were i'll give you an example he's just you know like uh oh gosh i remember one time my brother chris crushed an apple with a tractor 
<laughs> or, or wait, I'll give you another one. Hold on. Yeah, no, that's not a bad Kevin Von Eric. Oh, I remember one time me and Dave, we found a bunch of kittens by Lake Dallas. So I had Pop bring me to the store and I bought a condor. Killed all those kittens. Have you heard any of those rumors about him allegedly killing cats in the dressing room or the locker room? I never witnessed any cat killing going on in any locker room I was around, or I probably would have had something to say about it. But uh, I, I, I mean, who knows what to believe with that? Because when you hear rumors of people killing cats, but uh, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you know, it's a funny I story. Don't fucking no. I think it was Jeff Bowdrin. It could have been Kurt, but I think it was Jeff Bowdrin told the story on the show a while back. Him and Dave Meltzer went to Japan for a tour, and the Von Erichs were over there for New Japan at the time. And they ran into Kevin and I think Kerry in the hotel lobby. And Kevin says, you know, hey, is he the one of you guys, that newsletter guy? And they both said, no, no, no. And Kevin said, oh, good, because if I find him and he held out the claw. (laughs) 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 So I love the idea he would have put Meltzer in the claw if he found him. I'll claw him. So, uh, yes, it's number four this week. Kevin here in the top ten. And from there, let's go to number three, one of the most popular characters. I had a chance to speak to her earlier today. Number three in the top ten, Hiccuping Fabulous Moolah. Here at number three this week in the top ten is Hiccuping Fabulous Moolah. And I believe we right now have a connection to her ranch, her farm, her, I don't know what exactly is, her compound in South Carolina. Hiccuping Fabulous Moolah, are you on the line? Well, yes, Brian, you're exactly correct. We do like to call it a compound here in Columbia, South Carolina. And hello and happy holidays to you and all the faithful 605 (gasps) listeners. Thank you very much. It was very kind of you to do that and say that here at the top of the show. But here you are, number three in the top ten. How does it feel? What's going on? What are you up to? Well, of course, you know, Brian, it's the holiday time. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. I thought the doctor had given me... (gasps) Something for my condition, and I just <gasps> seem to be worse than ever before. And since you asked, my friend Clementine <gasps> from West Virginia is here. We are having a good old time gussying up the place <gasps> for the holidays, of course. She was named after the uh, the tangerine or whatever the hell that citrus is. <laughs> uh, we're just having some sitting around, <gasps> catching up, and having some delicious coffee. And my Aunt Henrietta is famous Linda Torts. <gasps> what? I declare, Lillian, this coffee is just so good. There's so many flavors in here that I just never experienced before. Oh, that's my friend Clementine. <laughs> she just thought she would get a little airtime for her. <laughs> but you know, Brian, since you asked, all my slaves, <laughs> I mean staff, is extra busy because the George Trago, <laughs> the George Trago's <laughs> Hall of Fame has, <laughs> has requested some of my ring-worn, <laughs> my ring-worn outfits. You know, my onesies, my my one pieces, and they're busy repurposing all the old crotch cards. They're busy repurposing all the old crotch cards as coffee filters. Did you say your onesies? Your old crotchless panties, Moolah, what the hell is wrong with you? What are you even feeding me? If that's what's in the coffee, what's in the lizard sauce? What the fuck? Oh, gross. Oh, grow up, Clementine. It's the 21st century. Like, it's the first time you've tasted any of that. Oh, my God, you got coffee all over my favorite rug. 
hang on a minute, Brian. Brian, I'm so sorry. You know, (laughs) it seems like every time I'm on with you, it's like one thing after another. Let me just call my my friend in here. She's going to get this mess all cleaned up because my my favorite rug is looking a mess right (laughs) (laughs) now. Oh, I just dropped my spectacles here. Let me. Just give me one second. Oh, my God. Goodness, ever since I passed the age of 85, I get dizzy when I bend down. Will anyone ever tell you you sound a lot like Clementine? <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're from the same area, you know, all of us Southern Bills. You know, we like to, oh, anyway, anyway, um, Clementine, this is my <gasps> message to you. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm very sorry about, about the inconvenience. Um... <laughs> Let me just let me just call for my staff here. If you if you can for staff? one minute and, and just just bear with me. I... <laughs> oh, excellent! There she here she comes. Uh, Juju B, when my interview <gasps> when my interview is finished, would you just be a dear and vacuum this rug and um. That's it? I, I, I said when my interview was... I said... Juju B, I said when my interview... You son of a bitch! We're completely wrong with you! I'm not having my goddamn interview! Oh, somebody's very important right now! What the hell is wrong with you? I'm gonna bury you up to your neck! I cover you in honey and let the crows pick your eyes out! the hell's wrong with you? This is gonna be the worst Christmas of your life! Brian, I am so sorry. Oh, not as sorry, I, as, I, not as, you, sorry as your neighbors, you know, <laughs> you know, Brian, I should really go right now because I've got two people in my powder room right now, and one of them is hyperventilating, and the other one has just pissed herself to death, I think. So, <laughs> but what I really want to say, Brian, if um, you have anything left to say, I would just like to wish a happy, healthy, positive life like I live. To all the 605ers out there, and a happy holiday season, (laughs) and a happy new year. There she is at number three in the top ten, hiccuping fabulous moolah, very popular here on the show. Speaking of popular... She she used to go around with farting Mae Young, didn't she? (laughs) I think so, that may be on next week's show. But speaking of popular here on the show... At number two this week is someone who I can't explain his popularity. It is, of course, Hot Dog, or as some people call it, Hot Dog and Lasto. Let's go to this sorry recording right now. Here at number two this week in the top ten is a man that has become very, very popular with the listeners and uh, apparently the Ruin Brothers, uh, amongst other people here on the show, and that is the man known as Hot Dog, and I believe he is on the line right now. Hot Dog, are you there? Happy anniversary, Lasto. Got you on my mind. I guess you are there. Happy anniversary, Lasto. Okay, I think we've heard Got enough. Got you on my mind. <laughs> what the hell is that? Stop honking. I'm trying to hear what you're playing. <laughs> what is this hot dog? Ah, it's happy anniversary, man, with a, by the Little River Band. Oh, okay. That's what that yeah. was. Well, 
Thank you, Hockey. You, you know them. They're really talented, and they've got a whole bunch of fans, but they're not really anybody's favorite. <laughs> okay. Yeah? Yes. Kind of yeah. like Tito Santana. Well, no, right? Hey, don't besmirch Tito Santana here on the anniversary show. Far from it. Happy anniversary, Lasto, though. How about that? It's our third anniversary. Well, it's not your third anniversary. It's the 605 Super Podcast third anniversary. Uh, thankfully, uh, yeah. you have not been here the entire three years. Well, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, hot dog and Lasto's anniversary in the land of the free and the home of the footlong hot dog. Okay, oh, that's a Paul Ellering line. Can you dig it? <laughs> I, can, I can dig it, yes, yes. Been an incredible ride these last three years, but I can't take all the credit. You know, I think most of the praise should go to you, the great Brian Lasto. Well, well thank you. Thank you, hot dog. Uh, Go ahead, old chum. Have you got a speech prepared? I don't have anything prepared. I never know what you're going to do here. I just uh, hope it'll be uh, quick and painless. Typical Lasto. <laughs> if there's one thing all the fans and listeners on this show can agree upon, it's your modesty. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think so. Humble Brian. That should be your new nickname. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'll take it. Hey, Lasto. Yes. Have I got a special anniversary surprise for you? Oh, the music wasn't the anniversary surprise? Oh, just that's just one of the surprises. Oh, no, okay. I really had to pull okay. some strings, but I've got a super special A-list celebrity guest who's got a special performance prepared just for you. Do not tell me you somehow roped Dolph Ramsor into helping you with this segment, Hot Dog. I wish. <laughs> it's time once again for Hot Dog Celebrity Corner. What? What is this? And it gives me great pride to welcome our guest, one of the premier vocalists of the New Wave era, and a huge professional wrestling fan to boot. What? Here he is, Brett Schneider of the B-52s. <laughs> what? Surprise! <laughs> hey, Hot Dog. Hey, Flying Brian. It's a pleasure to be here on your show. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here, Fred Schneider from the B-52s. That's right. I'm a huge wrestling fan. Some of my favorites are Exotic Adrian Street and Mike the Hippie Boyette. Oh, I didn't know that. Not to mention Cactus Jack, who got his catchphrase Bang Bang from our hit single Love Shack. Remember that part? I, uh, I, I do. On the door, baby. Right, right, sure. Bang Bang, knock a little louder, sugar. Okay, I, I got ah, it. What a great guy Cactus Jack is. Need I say more? No, you need say no more. Uh, Fred, thank you so much for being here. Well, Lasto, I'm currently resting my vocal cords between tours. But in honor of your third anniversary, I wanted to do a dramatic reading of a favorite piece of pro wrestling literature. Uh, the author is anonymous, but this piece comes from the June 1982 issue of Sports Review Wrestling. Okay. It's titled, Apartment Wrestling Match of the Month, Massacre in the Penthouse. <laughs> Fred Schneider from the B-52s. I would love it if you would read this letter from, uh, or this article, excuse me, written by Anonymous from Sports Review Wrestling in 1982. First, a brief synopsis. In this reading, we meet two lithe, liberated young ladies, Tammy and Amanda, both sexy, beautiful, but deadly. <laughs> in an elegant penthouse high above the streets where people go about their mundane tasks, one of these gorgeous vixens will emerge the victor, the other a humiliated victim. The match begins. Tammy made the first move 
and snared Amanda in a headlock. Twisting ruthlessly, Tammy Decker... Are you just going to read this article, this full article here? Is that the idea of Fred or whoever I'm talking to? It gets more dramatic as we go along. Okay, okay. Twisting ruthlessly, Tammy yanked her foe across the room. Amanda's legs went out from under her, and, <laughs> and she flopped crazily along. <laughs> In desperation, she reached up, grabbed Tammy around the neck, and fell backwards. Both women crashed onto the carpet a tangle of legs and arms. When they separated, they were both smiling coldly. This was beginning to be fun. <laughs> okay. Slowly, they approached each other, hands flicked out like venomous snakes seeking to wound. <laughs> then, Amanda's left hand snaked under Tammy's right shoulder, twisting the blonde around. The blonde's leg lashed out, driving her heel into the back of her foe's knee. <laughs> Tammy pitched forward, falling face first onto the plush carpet. Momentarily stunned, she was helpless to prevent oh, okay. Amanda's assault. All right, you know, Fred, I think we've heard enough. The blonde, oh. le <laughs> the blonde leaped in the air and came crashing down on the small of Tammy's back like a savage cowgirl. Okay. <laughs> savage cowgirl. She grabbed cowgirl. Tammy's braids like reins and began twisting and turning the brunette's head. Is this really the article? <laughs> Tammy fucked and writhed. Drink just take <laughs> free. All right. Hot dog. Uh, uh Fred. <laughs> Fred. <laughs> Forgot who I'm talking to. All right. I think we've heard enough of this apartment house wrestling read here. Uh, who, who am I speaking with? Who is on the other line right now? It's Fred. What are you doing? Are you actually cutting me off? I was cutting you off, yes. You're what? <laughs> cutting you off. Okay, Lasto, I don't want this to be a party out of bounds. <laughs> All right, well, thank you thanks, for appearing thanks, here, Fred. Thanks for inviting me on your anniversary show. I'll just sit myself out. Hey, hold that elevator door. Lobby, please. I'm going down, down. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Celebrity guest here on a Hot Dogs Hit Parade or whatever this is. Five minutes with Hot Dog. Five minutes with podcast, whatever, whatever you have called your show throughout your time here on the Super five, Podcast. Hey, five minutes with Lasto. <laughs> five minutes with you. Right, Do you have anything else? Can we, uh, can we get Fred out of this? Schneider. Fred Schneider. I bet you didn't see that one coming, huh? No, I did not see that one coming, and I was glad to see it going, though. Well, this has been a real Bobby Dazzler of an anniversary show, my brother. And all I can say is, in all sincerity, Lasto, you deserve it. Oh, God. Don't do that shit. You deserve it. All right. Well, thank you, Hot Dog. Uh, goodbye. And uh, I think hey. we have to go. Well, follow me on Twitter. At, huh, that sounded a lot like Fred Schneider right there. <laughs> hey, follow me on Twitter at 605 Hot Dog before I block you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think we hey. have to go, Hot Dog. Hey, Lasto. What's that? You're right. We got to go. There he is at number two, Hot Dog and Lasto. Who is, who's determining the popularity here as you speak of on the program? The top ten is voted on by the listeners of the Super Podcast at Facebook.com. Ah, well, it's, so then it's, 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 it's verified and, and Price Waterhouse is involved in things. Well, we have a big, big new top contender this week at number one, making a debut at number one. It is Cranky Barista Ken Patera, and I had a chance to speak with him earlier today. <laughs> Let's go to this right now. 
Here at number one in the top ten, it is Cranky Barista Ken Patera. I believe I said that correctly, and I believe he is also here with us today. Cranky Barista Ken Patera, congratulations, number one in the top ten. What the fuck are you talking about? You you are number one in the top ten as voted on by the listeners of the oh, yeah. Super Podcast. Of course I'm number one, you cocksucker. Ken Patera gold medaled in the Pan American Games in 1971, you little weird beard. <laughs> Am I supposed to be impressed by this little circle jerk top ten? Uh, well, hold on, you're number one in the little All right, little all right, jerk. all right. Like, I, I got tables to wait on. Hey, do you still stay in touch with Jimmy Cornette? Uh, yes, I speak with Jim yeah. Cornette regularly, yes. He's a squirrely motherfucker, isn't he? <laughs> hold on, well, listen, uh, cranky barista Ken Patera. i tell you what. The next time you talk to him, just a little friendly advice from the Olympic strongman. What's that? When you go to the fucking Dairy Queen or Wendy's or whatever the fuck, yeah. don't ever waste time at the drive through window. Go right up to the front door. And <laughs> the counter. Well, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if people should Laugh be following that up. advice. The fuck. It's, just, it's just quicker that way. He's an old friend. I just thought I'd give him some friendly advice. Now look. Yes. Uh, Man, I haven't got all fucking day. Of course I'm number one. Yes. Now, fuck out of here. Oh, by the way, we don't fucking serve French toast. Fuck off. There he is at number one in the top ten, Cranky Barista, Ken Patera. I can't wait to see where we go with this in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, but hey, hey, course- hey, hey, by the way, you know, I asked Ken Patera one time because he was in Memphis in 83. I was the, you know, young curtain jerking manager and gave him a couple of rides to the spot shows after the TV on Saturday in Memphis. We'd go to Jonesboro or where, wherever he was booked. And I asked him one time, I said, Ken, I said, as strong as you are. I said, do you ever get mad and kind of get carried away with yourself? He said, oh, I've, I've turned over a couple of Coke machines, but I, I kind of keep myself under control. And like two years later, he's throwing fucking landscaping boulders through the door at McDonald's in Waukesha or wherever. So just Ken, it's a very powerful man. If you ever want to see what that would have looked like, go watch that match that just happened in Mexico where the guy threw the cinder block through the other guy's head. And imagine yes. Ken Patera doing that to the McDonald's while the frightened worker standing there. With 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 a landscaping boulder instead of a fucking uh, uh, cinder block. He is at number one, Cranky Barista Ken Patera. That, of course, means he challenges for the title next time on the show against either the champion, the magnificent one, or the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And the votes are in. They have been tabulated. The winner and still champion, the magnificent one. And we will go in just one moment to Sunset Beach to speak with him. But first, let's go now to a few words with the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. I am happy to welcome back to the show here on the anniversary show, one of the most popular characters in show history. He, of course, did lose today to the magnificent one, but we are very happy to have him what? here. The handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. I hear the clapping, boogeyman. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to the anniversary show. Uh, thank you very much, brother Lasto. I'm doing fine, like mellow, mellow wine. <laughs> okay, I guess that's doing fine. I'm not bitter this week, Post Office Lasto. We had a little problem last week, but I'm uh, I'm shot out of a cannon well, this week. There wasn't really a little bit of a problem. You were upset, I guess, that the Ruin Brothers mentioned Hot Dog and not you, and then you stormed off the show. Or, well, you very kindly well, walked off the show. Since last we spoke, the handsome Jimmy man has got so many irons in the fire, <laughs> so many new vistas and ventures to tell, 
all the good people about. You know, this top 10 is increasingly rare. <laughs> well. Top 10 comes along about as often as a Brock Lesnar title match. Well, <laughs> maybe a little more frequent that? than that. Topical humor from the Boogeyman. Well, hold on, Boogeyman. I want to hear a little bit about these new ventures that you're working on. What are you working on over there in Shawsville? Well, first things first. What exactly is my spot in this formerly influential top 10? <laughs> well, hold on. I said it at the top of the segment here. You lost this week to the Magnificent One. He got oh, more votes than you. I had my suspicions about that very thing, about who might have defeated me for this uh, illustrious crown. Lasto, put Howard Brown on the phone. Howard Brown? Yeah, Howard Brown, a funny man from out of town. <laughs> His name is Howard Baum, not Howard Oh, is Brown. that right? <laughs> Well, be it as it may, Howard Baum, as he is now known, the man thinks he's so funny with his numerous characters. Handsome Jimbo's got characters. Check out these side-splitting characters. Well, hold on. What? First of all, it's the magnificent one who has characters. Howard Baum may be someone who... Da, 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 da. Check out these side-splitting characters. Okay. BG's completist, Frankie Williams. What? Yes, it's the perennial prelim bum remote Columbus, Ohio, speaking about his extensive collection of records and rarities by the <laughs> Brothers Gibb. Okay, I don't know if that one's going to catch on, Boogeyman. I'm sorry. I may have lost the online auction for the Barry Gibb picture disc, but I'm always in there. Uh, all right. I don't know what this is, Boogeyman. When, but, it, uh, we when it comes to having a huge Bee Gees collection, I don't run from nobody. <laughs> okay, <laughs> BG's completest, Frankie Williams. All right, Boogie Man. It's time to move on with the show. Is that all you have this week? As if that wasn't enough, I've got new tag teams. Tag teams? New tag teams. How about Robert Gibson and Marty Jannetty? They are known as the other guys. All right. Can you dig it? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That one's... Uh... Well, perhaps you'll like this one even less. <laughs> okay. Brian Adidas and Tim Horner, a.k.a. the Mid-Morning Express. The Mid-Morning Express? Yes. When their opponents are still holed up sleeping off the night before, the Mid-Morning Express is up faxing and relaxing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, all the, right, Boogie Man. The original Mid-Morning Express. Are those the only tag teams that you have uh, today? Yeah, that's all for the tag team division, but I'm saving the most for last. This character is a surefire chop topper. It's a celebrated ring announcer who's always there haunting your favorite tavern. What? Barfly Joe McHugh. Barfly Joe McHugh? Ah, oh, bartender. <laughs> I'd like a Seagram's and Seven. <laughs> Make it a double. <laughs> And one of those pickled eggs. <laughs> All right, Barfly Joe McHugh. I like that one, My Boogie Man. My wife doesn't understand me. <laughs> All right. All right, Boogie Man. I can see it. I can see it in cheers right now. Joe McHugh. What does it take to get some service around here? What am I from Parts Unknown? <laughs> All right, Joe McHugh. Hey. Hey, buddy, you know who I am? Uh, my name is Drew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Boogeyman. Well, good job. You ended up pulling something out of uh, nowhere this week. Wow. 
Barfly Joe McHugh. I like that. Barfly Joe McHugh. And that's about it. Uh, <laughs> for my new character parade, as it were. All right. Well, I got some other projects that are formulating and uh, taking shape, like my new faction, the hottest faction that pro wrestling has seen to date, the Boogie Club. The Boogie Club? The Boogie Club. I, I, I got a faction of wrestlers uh, heretofore unnamed, but I'm just saying the combination, you take a little bit of Punky and Hoot, the Rock and Roll Express, combine it, with some of Boogie's army like myself and Willie Willie, Manny Fernandez, or Bad Pistol Pez Watler, and you've got the hottest faction that anyone's ever seen, the Boogie Club. Not to mention that I've already got some 15 to 18 T-shirt designs that all look suspiciously alike. <laughs> well, right. well, Back the Brinks truck. The Boogie Club is on the way. All right. Well, Boogeyman, uh, very timely for you to jump on the uh, Bullet Club bandwagon all these uh, months and years what? later. But <laughs> as we wrap things up here, any words you have for the listeners here on the Super Podcast, on the anniversary show, you've been such a big part of this show. Anything you want to say? Oh, you know, the Boogeyman feels very sentimental about this 605 anniversary. The wonderful, beautiful fans that continually vote for me to be the number one man have really given me a new leash on life. I'm getting a little bit, uh, a little bit sentimental. Uh, I wish I'd prepared better for this, and I, I told myself I wasn't gonna cry. But I want to say from the bottom of Boogie's heart, thank you, thank you very much to all my fans and friends and to you, Brian. For all you meant to me over three years. And uh, not too much to add, except those Ruin Brothers just better watch their ass. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Where did that come from? You can't say that. Happy anniversary. Woo! Mercy, daddy. Here he is after defeating the handsome boogeyman and still... The reigning 605 Super Podcast Super Universe Champion, none other than the Magnificent One, and I believe we have a connection right now to Sunset Beach, Hawaii. Magnificent One, are you on the line? Boo-hoo-hoo. Boo-hoo, you poor, disgusting, not-the-boogeyman Jimmy Valiant. You <laughs> poor piece of street trash who will never see the goal of the 605 Championship once again. Did you know? Most people have to shave their head when they get rid of lice. But when lice have a problem with parasites, they have to shave their head to get rid of Jimmy Valiant. Did you know that, I Mr. Not, Brian Lack? I did not know that. I did not know that, Magnificent One. But you're still champion this week for the Top 10 and the 605 Super Podcast Super Universe. How does it feel to be the reigning champion? Oh, no. You got her all wrong, Brian Lass. Congratulations to you for procuring the number one talent of the podcast scene in professional wrestling today. How must it feel to have the two greatest talkers in the history of professional wrestling on one broadcast, James E. Cornette and the Magnificent One, 
the Prince of Darkness himself. Come and to claim his title. Come and to claim his rightful way to be. Come and to claim his championship title. What would you like to know from me tonight? I, I don't know. I've asked you a question twice, and I don't know why you, you've just said all these other things. But once again, Magnificent One, you are still the champion here. How does it feel to be so popular with the listeners of the Super Podcast that they keep electing you to be their champion? Oh, I've got my fans, Brian Last, as you well know. The people write to me. 10 million followers on 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 Twitter, G Book, everything you can name. How many how many G- followers does Katy Perry have? I have five times that amount. 75 million followers. Kim Jong-un doesn't have that many followers as me. They said magnificent one. How do you prepare for your award-winning appearances on the on the 605 podcast? First thing I do, I stop taking all my medication three weeks out. (laughs) Second thing I do, I start taking my neighbor's medication two weeks out. He's really sick. He gets the best stuff. (laughs) Being the magnificent one, since you asked, is like driving down a wet one-way mountainside highway with your brake line cut. You don't know what the fuck is going to happen next. (laughs) What can I do for you? Has that happened to you? That happened to me on a road trip with Dickie Slater in 1978. Okay. Well, Magnificent One, uh, this is a very special episode of the Super Podcast. We're not just here for the top 10, but we're also celebrating three years of the Super Podcast, of the 605 Super Podcast. So how does it feel to be a part of this anniversary spectacular? Unbelievable. You know, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I've done so many things. I'm better looking than Jack First man to reverse the figure. I'm so bad I bruised a building once. Did you know that? New York City, <laughs> 1982. Bruised a building. I took a <laughs> shit on a rainbow. That's how bad I am. Wiped my ass with a handful of butterflies. I told him I Why once told him I was go. Hold on, how does that make you bad? That's just I <laughs> once told him I was to go fuck himself. Fuck fuck nature. <laughs> fuck all in it. I was just in Malibu. Malibu is in flame. I set up a beast chair and made s'mores. That's how bad I am. Oh, that's not even funny. That's bad. You can't say I went to Miami and made everybody speak English for a week. That's how bad I am. Uh, I can make anything happen. When you said bad, I didn't realize you meant bad this way. (laughs) You meant bad is tough. It went from bad being tough to bad being bad. But magnificent one, once again, you're going all over the place. You're avoiding the issue. You are on the Super Podcast for the anniversary show this week. How does it feel? I'm the man that stirs the straw. I'm the drink that makes the dinner. I'm all, I'm all everything all together. Let me tell you something. Let me go out into my rumpus room because, as you know, it's a 24-7 party out here on Sunset Beach for the Magnificent One. I have got all my friends over a 40-year wrestling career. In your rumpus so room? So let me just, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've got the Magnavox stereo. I've got the VCR all set up. I've got the projection TV. 1982, best technology out there. No reason to update. No reason to update. I got the Malibu rum, costume fruit through my veins. Got all my friends over here. You want to have an idea of how the Magnificent One lives his life? You want to know who I hang out with? Who do you hang out with? Let me just take a look around. Let me put my spectacles on here. Medium Bill Dromo. I don't know how we got him in the house. Medium Bill Dromo. K-Sax Calhoun. Wait, I didn't even know he was Jewish. Say that again. Creeping. K-Sax Calhoun. K-Sax Calhoun, what's wrong with you? 
Clean out your ears, Brian Lanny. Creeping Lanny Poffo. Say something, Lanny, to the people. There once was a worker from Nantucket whose member... That's enough! What the hell is wrong with you? Coming on the 605 with the manganese Mike Sharp. Manganese Mike Sharp. Still a fine mineral in his own right. Still a fine mineral. Nothing to be ashamed. Body odor Nick Bockwinkle. You know, somebody should really say something. He is impossible to be around these days. The $675,000 man adjusted for inflation. (laughs) Ghetto Bob Backlund. I believe he's banging (laughs) with MS-13 right now. Sad. It's a sad case. Started off as such a gentleman. Mr. Babyface himself. (laughs) Face tattoos on Ghetto Bob Backlund. Can't even believe it. Clammy hands Ken Lucas. Southern legend. Nobody can shake his head. Clammy hands, kind of psychedelic Ivan Koloff. Oh, come on. Folks, if I can be serious for a minute, he can really use your thoughts and prayers right now. Because psychedelic Ivan Koloff is suffering from Russian sickle cell anemia. And that's no joke. <laughs> that is no joke. You're right. That is awful. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to say something to the people, psychedelic Ivan Koloff? You've been on mind-bending alterations since I have known you. Thank you, Comrade Morocco. I used to live in room full of mirrors until government took our subsidy away. <laughs> That's just poetry. My old tag, my old foe from Florida, Ivan Koloff. That was a legend. Psychedelic <laughs> Ivan Koloff. Right. Oh, you have to buy the album for the rest. That's oh, on Patreon, my friend. That's four ninety nine a minute if you want to hear. Psychedelic Ivan Koloff. ECW Bruno. Brought back by special Yeah, he was very popular. He Everybody's was looking for ECW yeah. Bruno. Couldn't find him. I got ECW. Come over here. Let me, hey, come over here for one second. Hey, listen, sonny boy, you put that microphone in my face one more time. I'll fuck you up. <laughs> All right, sonny boy. <laughs> oh, my God, look who it is. My towel just fell off. Naked as a jaybird in my living room. Don't even kicked over a, a, a container of vomit from last night. Don't even care. Look who it is. It's Grandmaster Bob Cottle. Oh, everybody's favorite. Grandmaster Everybody Bob wants to Cottle. bow down to Grandmaster. I know what you're saying, Dungeon Master Bob. But this week it's Grandmaster Bob Cottle because he has a rap for you. I have set up a karaoke <laughs> in my rumpus room. And everybody's here. Even his old friend, fetal alcohol syndrome, David Crockett, has come to lend his wishes to the great Bob Cottle. Hello again, fans. Thank you very much, Don. And uh, David, it's great to see everybody here this week. Give me a beat. A funky beat. Yeah, that'll do. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm feeling it. Well, I raw dog Rihanna had my way with Aaliyah. That's not a mic in my pants, folks. I'm just excited to see ya. What is this? I was, a, I was around before computers. Teletype was all the rage. Back in 77, I had more VD than Jimmy Page. What, what? This is not good. I discovered string beans. I invented molasses. Now get out of my way and let me tap those asses. All right. Thanks, folks. And until next week, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Incredible Bob Cobb. Grandmaster Bob Cobb. Not bad, not bad. An old school G if I've ever seen. And I'm out of material now. So what would you like to know from me, Brian? Let me tell the people. Three-year anniversary. Holiday season. 
from me, the Magnificent One, all my best to you. Is there anything you would like to know from me, Brian Lass? Well, no, I think we should get out of here before uh, rapping Bob Cottle comes back. But uh, I did want to say next time in the top ten, of course, you will face the number one contender who is now the surging cranky barista, Ken Patera. Oh, you're talking some serious competition now. Now you're talking about something that's naturally hilarious. But I stand by myself, I will reign for a thousand years. I'm the Magnificent One, synonymous with the 605. And nobody is going to topple me from the mountaintop. Well, there it is, the handsome boogeyman and the magnificent one. Of course, top 10 voting is at Facebook.com slash superpodcast. And, and is, is there wagering allowed? Uh, you know, no one has asked before, and I haven't even considered it. Is this something I'm, you're interested in? Well, I may be putting some money on somebody. I don't know. I got to consider who would you put money I'm not, on? I'm not going to tell you. Then it'll be the smart money. Is They'll know where it is, and it'll drive my odds down. Okay, well, that's a good point. I want to thank Director of Show Research, Jace Nacarado, for helping compile the top ten. I really do appreciate all of his help. And from there, Jim, we're going to move on to a few more minutes with Don Leo Jonathan. Of course, I was very fortunate. Earlier this year, I got to spend some time talking with the legendary Don Leo before he passed away. And we had several talks that really illuminated on various things throughout wrestling history. This is a little bit of a fun discussion, a rather short one, but we're going to talk a little bit about his memories of Wild Bull Curry. Let's now go to a few more minutes with Don Leo Jonathan. What can you tell me about Wild Bull Curry? Uh, I got a, a cute story about Wild Bull. Remember he had those real heavy eyebrows? <laughs> of course, of course. Remember that? And remember how he looked? Okay, we were coming back from Shikutsumi. Where's that? That's way north of Quebec City, about uh, 300 miles to the Laurentine Park. And it's up on the lakes, of, up at St. John Lake. It's a real desolate piece of road, especially at night. And we had a flat tire, uh, Curry's with me and uh, another guy. And we had this flat tire, so we're out biking down trying to get somebody with a jack, because my jack was broke. And a car stopped, and I started walking down to the car, but Bull Curry got out of the car ahead of me and stuck his head in the window when the guy rolled it down and says, you got a jack? They took one look at him and burned rubber. <laughs> So we said, Bull, you stay in the car. They say he had the murder face. <laughs> That's what I've read in various programs. The man with the murder face. Yeah. Yeah, the Italians would say that's a faccia brute. <laughs> that's ugly face. That's ugly face. <laughs> yeah, faccia brute. Face like a brute. Were you there when he was in any of his riots? I know Bull Curry was in the midst oh, of yes. several. Yes, I was I was there. He spent a lot of his time in the Maritimes in the summers. 
and he spent a lot of time in Montreal and Boston. But I think he must have come from Boston. Welcome to another edition of Pandemonium Theater. I'm your narrator, Lou Kippelman, and today is part three of our reading of the script Pandemonium Inc. by Craig A. Williams. Today's Pandemonium players are the great Brian Last as Vince McMahon Jr., Howard Baum as Vince McMahon Sr., Jeff Baldrin as Vern Gagne, Mike Mills as David Crockett, Jim Cornette as Jim Crockett, Bobby Blaze as Jack Briscoe, Amy Lee as Linda McMahon, and yours truly as Gorilla Monsoon. Cut to Interior, National Arena, Washington, D.C., Night, where McMahon stands in front of the ring. We have a full night of action for you, so let's get to it. We cut between McMahon and the ring where a man in a Native American headdress, Chief Jay Strongbow, dances around a bleach blonde, Freddie Blassie. We start this evening with an epic battle as Chief Jay Strongbow faces off against Freddie Blassie. The wrestlers grapple, wrapping each other up. Look at the strength there, ladies and gentlemen. Lots and lots of strength. Vince flips through the script and looks behind him at the board audience. Fuck it. He closes the script and wings it. Chief J, of course, the pride of the Chippewa Nation, and Freddie Blassie, who actually had his teeth filed down to make them sharper when he bites his opponents. Freddie looks over at McMahon. What the fuck's he talking about? Slap! Chief J gets a shot in and sweeps Freddie's legs out from under him. As the Chief dances around him... Oh my goodness, folks! This looks bad for Blassie! It looks like... Yes! It looks like Chief Jay is going in for his famous Chippewa chokehold. Now Chief Jay looks over at McMahon, who shrugs, mimics scalping. Chief Jay jumps on Freddy's back, wrapping him in a chokehold and following McMahon's pantomime, scalps Freddy. Freddy flops on the ground like a dying fish. A savage maneuver, friends! Uncivilized! As Chief Jay dances around Freddy... Interior, National Arena, backstage, continuous. Senior watches the feed on a small TV, with Gorilla Monsoon and the rest of the wrestlers. The fuck's he doing? Punching up the script? Interior, National Arena, continuous. The crowd takes notice, sits up in their seats. McMahon nods to Chief J, who pretends to wail on Freddy. I have never seen such savagery in the ring or anywhere else, folks. Our referee, Mean Gene Okerlund, he needs to... A short, bald referee, Mean Gene Okerlund, looks over. How's he now involved? He needs to intervene! But quite frankly, I'm not sure even Mean Gene is safe near that savage. McMahon nods and Chief looks at him like he's crazy. Then, slap! He takes down Mean Gene to light applause. Chief J is out of control here in our nation's capital. Vengeance, perhaps, for what the Pale Faces did to his people. It is pandemonium here, ladies and gentlemen. Pandemonium! As the chief works Mean Gene, McMahon pounds on the mat for Freddy's attention. But what's this, folks? Classy Freddy Blassie down, but not out. He's, I can't believe this, he's getting up! Freddy does and walks up behind Chief J. 
The crowd is practically rabid now. And it looks like, yes, folks, it looks like Freddy is going to apply his signature swinging neckbreaker on the Chief. Again, Freddy does as he's directed, bringing Chief J to his knees. The ref rolls away. He's got him now! Blassie just needs to finish him off, probably with, with a, with a... Both wrestlers look over at McMahon. With a what? Belly to back suplex? He smiles, nods at the fervent crowd. Chief's a big fucker, though. Freddy manages to get him airborne, and wham! Pounds him to the mat. Chief J flails like his back is shattered. The crowd eats it up. Freddy places a boot on Chief J's chest. The ref quickly counts off one, two, three. As the crowd cheers, cut to interior, national arena, office, night. McMahon faces the wrath of senior. The fuck was that? The audience was bored. I was bored. The fucking wrestlers are bored. Don't dick with the script. There's a science to this. Rules. Referees are off limits. And what was all that Chippewa shit? You think I want a bunch of redskins up my ass? It's good versus evil, Pop. Babyface versus heel. And tonight, yeah, cowboys and Indians. Doing circus maneuvers. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but no one actually gives a shit about the wrestling. No one gives a shit about the... At a wrestling meet? They want story. Theater. Get the fuck out of my office, Vinny. You can't fire me. Put a boot in your ass for good measure. You can't afford to pay a union wage. Union rules don't apply to family members. So unless I have a sibling or a cousin or a fucking Aunt Connie I don't know about, you're stuck with me. Senior lets out a hard laugh and sits back, takes in his son. (laughs) You're a poster child for condom use, you know that? We're in Harrisburg next week. Keep the bullshit to a minimum, and get a real suit by then. You're not selling fucking cups anymore. In a series of quick cuts, we see McMahon in different colored suits, calling different WWWF events in different cities with different wrestlers. Orange. The city of brotherly love decidedly less so as the devious one Mr. Fuji just threw salt in Sonny King's eyes. Powder blue. The Puerto Rican Pedro Morales with a Caribbean cannonball that just devastated Haystack's Calhoun here in Baltimore. With each cut, the crowd gets a little bit bigger and a little bit more rowdy. Canary. I'll tell you one thing, citizens of Pittsburgh. Anyone takes a running big boot followed by a hip toss from the likes of Bruno San Martino, they are not getting back up. Mauve. Backbreaker. Tope. Body slam. Turquoise. Atomic drop! Boom, boom, wham, slam. With every drop, slap, and thud, the audience gets bigger and rowdier. Senior can't help but notice, and shares a look with Gorilla Monsoon as we... Cut to. Interior hotel conference room. Night. Tables are set up in a semicircle, as Senior and Gorilla Monsoon sit among a group of 30 or so men. Scantily clad ring girls make the rounds with refreshments. Cocktails, pills, powder. Hey, it's the 70s. National Wrestling Alliance Summit, 1973. Placards identify their territory. Pacific Northwest Wrestling, Southwest Championship Wrestling, Ohio Valley Wrestling, and so on. 
Our relevant players here are Vern Gagne, a former Chicago Bear in his 50s who represents the American Wrestling Association. Yeah, I don't want to see so much as a flyer in a dumpster north of Kansas City from you, Lou. Jim Crockett, 30s, quiet Southern preppy, and David Crockett, 20s, the loudmouth little brother with something to prove. They represent Jim Crockett Promotions. My friends at Georgia Championship have made a less than acceptable offer for an appearance by our current agreed-upon champion. Georgia Championship Wrestling is represented by the current NWA Tag Team Champs. They have the belt in front of them. The Briscoe Brothers, 30s. $5,000 for five nights is less than acceptable. Cut the shit, Jack. You couldn't get Scrap Iron Gadaski for a grand a night. Ric Flair's my biggest draw. Ask anyone here what he's done for ticket sales in their territories. All right, look. Some cunt named Ted Turner just bought our outlet in Atlanta, and he's got us on a tight budget. Best offer is 15 grand a week. Jim Crockett nods his acceptance. One last item before we hit the nudies, gents. I caught one of my promoters skimming and had to part ways. Yeah, unfortunate about his car wreck. I got a kid down in Omaha doing good work. I'd like to give it to Vinny. See what he can do with the territory. Several of the members exchange uncomfortable looks. No disrespect, Vince, but some of us just don't know about that kid, professionally speaking. We've seen his broadcast. No respect for the sport or this association. Playing off that racial shit? The racial shit plays in the Northeast. The rest of you don't have Italians and Irishmen and fucking Polacks living on top of each other. Vince gets one shot. He fucks it up. We don't talk about him working in the business again. What territory are we talking about? Banger, up in Maine. After a beat, the entire room fills with laughter and murmurs of approval as we cut to exterior, Bangor, Maine, afternoon, picturesque, quaint, cold, and way the fuck up there. We push in on the Buick with McMahon driving Linda, Shane, now a toddler, and their infant daughter, Stephanie. They pull into a trailer park and step out to take the place in. This isn't an opportunity. It's exile. You know, our nation's capital was an uninhabitable swamp before some visionaries turned it into the seat of Western democracy. Off Linda's look. Opportunities, what you make of it. You owe me for this. Pointing to her crotch. One hour. And with that, we have another episode of Pandemonium Theater here in the books. We have a couple of our Pandemonium players here, of course, the popular co-host Howard Baum, as well as our narrator, Lou Kippelman. What do you guys think of this week's script? Howard, let me start with you. Any Anything that pops out? Any thoughts? Well, the word scintillating comes to mind. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know why, but it, <laughs> it does. Are you looking at a dictionary? <laughs> Well, it's interesting how this, uh, you know, we've talked about how this script has nothing to do with reality. Chief J. Strongbow appears to be the heel here as, as Freddie Blassie stops right. him from trying to get his revenge on the pale faces. Not you know. to mention Mean Gene is the ref. When did that ever happen? See, I like you know. this. I'm, I'm starting to like this version of wrestling history better than the real version. <laughs> Lou, any thoughts this week? I, I, I think so far this script has been 
the writing equivalent of in the botanical world is called the corpse flower. And it's a big, big plant that every so often opens up. And as it opens up, it smells like death and it's horrible. And I think like that, we're, we're getting to part three and we are reaching like full stinkitude, if you will. <laughs> well, we will see if that smell of death continues next time here on the Super Podcast with more Pandemonium Theater. But for now, let's go to another edition of In the News with Jim Cornette. It is now time for one of our most popular segments here on the Super Podcast, In the News. And of course, that means we bring on our main broadcaster here at the 605 Super Podcast, the lead, what, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the anchor man. The anchor man of the Super Podcast. Now, simple I love Lamp. What? I love Lamp. Oh, you're actually doing anchor man bits now. Well, if I'm the anchor man, trying to work with you here. The anchor man, Mr. Jim Cornette. I'm the John Cameron Swayze of In the News. Very good. Well, we have a bunch of stories this week here for the anniversary show, so of course that means we have to have very special stories, and I think you're going to really like these, Jim. And our first story is from Bowling Green, Kentucky, August 1st, 1980. Yamamoto, target of suit. Testimony began today in Warren Circuit Court in a civil trial involving allegations against professional wrestler Tojo Yamamoto. Robert Vaughn, 36, of Warren County, filed the suit against Yamamoto following a June 27, 1978 incident in which Vaughn claims he was struck by Yamamoto. Vaughn is seeking damages against Yamamoto and the Goulas Wrestling Enterprises Incorporated for pain and suffering in the amount of $30,000. Vaughn testified this morning that he was sitting among the crowd at Beach Bend Park observing a match between two other wrestlers when Yamamoto allegedly struck him on the head with a wooden shoe. <laughs> In his opening statements to the six-man, six-woman jury, defense attorney David Broderick said Vaughn had agitated Yamamoto and had kicked Yamamoto, encouraging a fight. Broderick said Vaughn, not Yamamoto, was cited by police. Vaughn's attorney, David McClellan, said Vaughn had not been an involved spectator and was the victim of Yamamoto's violence. My favorite kind of story, Jim, the innocent spectator minding yes. their own business when the heel jumps out of the ring and attacks them. Doing absolutely nothing, and suddenly Cornette dove out of the ring and began smashing him with a. Well, and I guarantee you, I I I know exactly what happened. The Vaughn's attorney said Vaughn had not been an involved spectator. Sounds like there was more than one. This guy was cited. Uh, probably Tojo did something. Had his shoe in his hand because that's what Tojo's gimmick was: was his Oriental wooden shoes. And when he was a heel. Those wooden shoes came into play. He had his shoe in his hand. Here comes these guys. Vaughn throws a fucking kick at him. Tojo beans him with the fucking shoe. Tojo, that's Danny Jack Donovan will tell you what Tojo could do with a wooden shoe. Well, it wasn't just Tojo, but Tojo with some friends could do some damage with a wooden well, shoe. Well, the, the shoe was probably the turning point in that argument. But yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, so that's exactly what happened. And Bowling Green at the Beach Bend Roller Skating Park, which is where that uh, Goulas ran, I believe, every Thursday night. So he was running Kentucky well after Jerry Jarrett split off from him. Well, see, there, here's the thing. Bowling Green is only 60 miles north up the road from Nashville. So that was run off the Nashville TV because Nashville is only 30 miles from the state line. So there were parts of Kentucky that Goulas was still running that got the Nashville TV. And then obviously Jarrett had Louisville and then Evansville, Indiana and Lexington. 
Jim, for our next story, we're going to go to Weekly World News from June 12th, 1990. They can't keep their hands off him. Wrestler terrorized by millions of loved, crazed women. In the knockdown, dragout world of pro wrestling, Sunny Beach fears no man, but between matches, the golden grappler hides away in hotel rooms like a terrified child trying to dodge the millions of women who stalk him day and night. Strapping Sonny has an amazing hypnotic power over women of all ages. One look and they fall at his feet or attack him like tiger cats trying to rip off his clothes. Women just can't keep their hands off of me, sighed the 260-pound former surfer boy. Believe me, this weird power I have over women is not a blessing. It's truly a curse. Case in point. After a match in New York City, 20 rabid gals bribed their way past a guard and cornered Sonny in a locker room, tearing at his clothes and forcing him to run for his life. Again, two weeks later, <laughs> the weary warrior found three naked ladies waiting for him in his hotel shower. And on another occasion, a stunned Sonny had to forfeit a match when dozens of love struck bellies. <laughs> That's what it, it says. Does, it does say bellies. It yes. says bellies. <laughs> tugged at him so hard he couldn't fight his way into the ring. The blonde basher has to make hotel and plane reservations under phony names to escape the clutches of lustful lady admirers recently. One of the richest women in the country sought him out in her stretch limo and offered him millions of dollars to lay underneath a glass table. And no, to come <laughs> live with her is what it says. Rich, poor, whatever, all women are attracted to me, says Sensational Sonny. I may be God's gift to women, but I would appreciate it if they would not send me any more love letters in the mail. I just haven't got time to read them. So I guess the question that I have is, who was it at Weekly World News that was a wrestling fan? Because well, clearly there was someone there. But they wouldn't have been a wrestling fan. They would have been an, an indie wrestling fan because Sonny Beach, and there's a picture of him. And ooh. With these, with these two uh, uh, rent-a-hoes that he's got uh, standing next to him. Um, one of them looks like she could have to run around in the shower to get wet. Um, he worked independent uh, wrestling shows in the mid-'80s up there in the New York area, and pretty much that's... Do you remember his name in the WWF? He didn't work in the WWF. He was an under. I mean, he was a job guy. I was about to say undercard and be nice. He was a job guy at some TV tapings, but they wouldn't call him Sunny Beach. They called him Sandy Beach. Oh, for God's sake! I didn't even remember that. But nevertheless, um, I I don't know. He may have had to pay somebody to write this this article. I'm not sure. You were in Weekly World News, weren't you? Um, well, I used to do the Weekly World News of of um. Oh, but yes, I was. What you were was in I it, in? though. Yeah. I was in it for something. What was I in it for? I forget now. That's what I was hoping. Well, now I've forgotten. No, now I've forgotten. And it was about, I have a copy of it around here somewhere. It's not framed on the wall? I don't have room. Well, weekly world news. And from there, Jim, let's get back to the real world. Los Angeles, October 19th, 1955. Wrestling bouts fixed. Two refs tell legislators by the United Press. Los Angeles, October 19th, a promoter accused of being the dictator of wrestling in Southern California testifies today before a state assembly subcommittee investigating the sport. Cal Eaton, Olympic auditorium promoter, was identified by two witnesses as controlling wrestling in this area. Two referees, Joe Woods and Al Billings, testified yesterday that the outcome of wrestling exhibitions are prearranged. Woods says he was instructed by Hollywood Legion Stadium promoter Hugh Nichols 
before two TV bouts on Monday night, who was to win? The bouts were 10-minute beat-the-champ exhibitions, Woods said, and Nichols told him to make sure nobody was going to beat the champ and get $1,000. Committeeman Clark L. Bradley asked Woods if arranging winners before a match was common practice. As far as I know, answered Woods, it's the only practice. Woods said his testimony, quote, may end my refereeing career. <laughs> Firm grasp of the obvious there. Subcommittee Chairman Frank G. Bunnell commended him for the testimony. Billings said, it's a known fact bouts are decided in advance. I used to work for Cal Eaton in his booking office, Billings said. I used to tell the referees who was to win. Billings said the performers do not rehearse bouts because most of them are good wrestlers and they don't need to. Three other referees testified they knew nothing of prearranged matches. Benelli said those found to have committed perjury before this committee will be dealt with by law at the conclusion of this hearing. Well, you know, there have been a lot of famous cases of the business being exposed in the papers. Of course, Jack Pfeffer famously used it as a weapon wherever it is that he went. There have been cases where it destroyed business and cases where it really had no effect whatsoever. I'm going to guess this is the latter here, where this had no effect on wrestling in Southern California. Well, you can also tell it looks like a small article. I don't see the, the context uh, of where it was, but it was probably buried on page 22. And you've got a couple of disgruntled referees that, that can be painted as such by the promotion. Uh, well, we fired them. Of course, they're trying to hurt our business. Well, we're, uh, we're a straight organization. You know, so it wasn't Baron Michelle Leone coming out and fucking, you know, uh, saying, oh, my match with Thez that drew $100,000 was fake. It's obscure referees and an article buried in the, pro in the process of a – the bigger deal was they were – this was during probably the antitrust buildup, and yeah. the state assembly subcommittee investigating the sport was probably – and also the, the beat the champ exhibition, make sure nobody was going to beat the champ and get a thousand dollars. They were probably doing get a thousand dollars. If you fucking last with our champion type of deals, uh, to, uh, with fans. And that is somewhat of a, a swerve as they used to say for the, to the public. So wrestling promoters never liked it when they were being investigated by any kind of, uh, legal body or, uh, official body. And, and these uh, California assemblymen probably got a couple of these old referees to fucking roll over. You brought up disgruntled referees. Who's the most disgruntled referee you've dealt with? Good God, a disgruntled referee. Um, I don't, I, I don't remember really a, a real prickish disgruntled referee. I'm sure there's been some. <laughs> well, what's it like for you when you get a referee who's not one of the regulars? You know, if you're in the uh, NWA in 1989, you have Nick Patrick, you have Tommy Young, you have Randy Anderson. But when you go to a small town and it's a oh, referee God. who's not one of those guys, you ever have any occurrences where it's just nothing's working out and the guy's not cooperating at all? Well, well, see, here was the problem. There was actually um, not Crockett's or TBS's fault. Crockett always had the same referees. TBS, uh, we we kept regular referees every once in a while they might pick up a local referee to do the first couple matches but generally i wasn't involved or the midnight express wasn't involved in that but when they first started going to new york state they had to have that was back and and i don't know whether it was the wwf just exerted enough pressure to fuck with those guys or whether that's the way that it always was but new york state had to have referees uh, that worked for the commission in new york refereeing the matches so we were there one night in like Rochester, New York, 
the Midnight Express versus one of the teams we were, you know, having a good program with. I can't remember whether it was the rock and roll or what match it was, but the point is Tommy Young is sitting there at the timekeeper's table playing the music of the boom box, holding the microphone to it, the way we used to do the entrance music, and there's this referee in the ring that's fucking 75 years old. And I'm thinking he's going to have a stroke. He can't fucking get it. We can't do any of our normal spots that involve a referee. We don't want to touch him. We might kill him. He can't get up and down. And the and Tommy was sitting and they had the commissioner sitting right there at the table also, whoever the commissioner was, right? And I leaned over. I got so fucking hot because the match was just, eh. I said, it's great. I said, we got the best referee in the business fucking playing goddamn music off a boom box and we got methuselah in the ring fucking our match up whose fault is this as i was yelling across tommy at the commissioner looking at him because i didn't want to go back to new york fucking state anyway those first forays into western new york were fucking miserable the people didn't know who we were necessarily although they would get with the show eventually uh, TV wasn't that strong, but the houses weren't that great. But the with the commission referees and just the old-fashioned way of doing everything they had up there, it was brutal. Brutal. Speaking of brutal, Jim, that's a nickname that a lot of wrestlers have had. Brutal Bob, for instance. There are a lot of different nicknames. You've given a few to people. You know, the Demon of the Deep, Leviathan. You've given out some great nicknames. And that's the topic of this next article from Dallas, Texas, November 16th, 1956. Wrestlers billing brings suit from ringside seat, Dallas, November 16th, the Associated Press. Promoter Ed McLemore denied in court yesterday that he billed a wrestler as mean, villainous, hard-hearted, merciless, cruel, cheating, sneaky, unsportsmanlike, and cowardly. The suit against McLemore was not brought by the wrestler. It's J.W. Whitaker who is suing McLemore for $54,600 on the grounds that the billing McLemore used so enraged a spectator against the wrestler that when the wrestler went into the arena, the spectator threw a bottle. Whitaker claimed that his skull was fractured by the bottle. The wrestling match was held four years ago. Now, this is a new twist <laughs> on the wrestling fans suing the wrestler and the promoter. Yes. And, I mean, every wrestling promoter has had has been sued for every stupid fucking thing that anybody thinks they can make a dollar off of, right? But this kind of takes it to, to new grounds. When I got sued in Baton Rouge, the guy's explanation to the newspaper for why that he tried to attack me and was pummeled by police and others was because I had, had called the crowd sad on the microphone because when i would get in the ring i'd take the microphone and i said you got to be the saddest bunch of people i've ever seen in my life so that was his excuse to leap from his seat run and attack me and, and suffer the consequences but yeah so mac lamore billed this wrestler under this billing which enraged a, a, a person in the crowd enough to throw a bottle who missed the wrestler and hit this guy on the head and Four years ago, I, well, he's had a fractured skull, so it took him a few minutes to come to his senses and realize that he should sue. His lawyer was going to find someone to sue by hook or by crook with this case. I wonder where Stephen P. News' father was if he was anywhere <laughs> around Dallas on November 16, 1956. I don't anyway. think he was there. Let's not incriminate him in this. But let's now move forward, Jim, to Santa Monica, California, November 12th. 1937, another twist on a story we had earlier with Tojo going into the crowd and hitting a fan. Let's see what this one has. Yes, gentle. Matt Fan suffered broken neck when Zabo eased him out of Hall. Santa Monica, California, November 11th, Associated Press. Wrestler Sandor Zabo 
replying to spectator Dale J. Grief's $24,000 lawsuit, was quick to admit his annoyance when someone hissed, You big bum, you're the type that beats up his wife. Zabo said he left the ring and tried, quote, as gently as possible, unquote, to remove Grief from the auditorium. In the process, Spectator Grief said he suffered a broken neck, a dislocated shoulder bone, and displacement <laughs> of several vertebrae. Well, gently, he tried to remove him from the arena. Well, and, and I think, you know, it, it, he was accused of being a wife beater and a big bum. So I think it's only natural that he should break this man's neck, dislocate his shoulder bone, and displace several of his vertebrae. And and I and once again, you never know in these deals in nineteen thirty seven or two thousand thirty seven, it's not going to be any different. Uh, you know, what which of these injuries exists, which of them is as a result of the uh, said incident, which ones have happened before, afterwards, exaggerated, etc. Uh, you never know. Obviously, here in this case. Allegedly, this fan said something, and Sandar Zabo got out of the ring and took care of it. Did you ever have guys you were around that, you know, we assume that wrestlers are expected to hear all sorts of things from the crowd, especially the heels, and just live with it. Just put up with it because that's their job. But do you know of any guys who just couldn't deal with it? If there was any heckling from the crowd, they would have to jump out of the ring and say something or go to the crowd? Well, once again, I know there's probably been a few of those in recent years. But at the time that I was at shows most every night of the week, you didn't want to go out in the crowd. Um, you, you might go to the railing, but you didn't want to go out in the crowd. And, and you know, really, no, it, it, I have and other people have reacted quite vehemently when somebody puts their hands on us or, you know, every once in a while the direct spit in the face or the fucking direct drink in the face or whatever. Uh, but I don't remember a lot of guys running out and trying to get involved in it. But uh, at the same point, you know, you never know what's going to happen. I've, 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 Dennis Condry had a great story when, when he was teaming with Phil Higgerson someplace in the 70s. And there was this guy on the front row that was jumping up and down and was giving him all kinds of shit and yelling at him and cussing him out and everything. And a lot of times the heels would make use of that and, and get with the guy and start fucking with him because he was getting the other people going, right? But Dennis at one point fills in the ring, Phil tags... Dennis, right? Dennis gets in the ring and starts doing something, but here's a big pop from the crowd and looks out, and there's Hickerson laying flat of his back on the fucking ground, and that guy's standing over him, pointing his finger in his face. Dennis, what the fuck? He jumps out on the apron, fucking either. I can't remember whether he jumped down or whether he kicked the guy, but he nails that fucking guy, and here comes the cops and goddamn grab Dennis. What the fuck? Come to find out when Phil got out on the apron, he went to jump down to. Fuck with the guy some more and get him going. And he's when he jumped down, he slipped in some coke or whatever, some beer it was spilled, and went <laughs> feet went up in the air and he went right back flat of his back on the ground and knocked the breath out of him. So he's laying there. The guy never touched him. So Dennis comes out and nails a fucking guy, thinking he assaulted Phil, and here came the cops. So you never know about these things. You never know. Well, let's get one more lawsuit in here this week, Jim. Let's go to Muskogee, Oklahoma, November fifteenth, nineteen thirty-three. Suit of wrestling referee is settled. Muskogee, Oklahoma, November 15th. The Associated Press used to love wrestling in those days. The suit of Frank Thompson, wrestling referee against Sam Avey, Tulsa promoter, and Gene Ellis, Muskogee promoter, for $10,400 damages was dismissed Wednesday when attorneys announced a settlement. Thompson was tossed from a ring here last April by Paul Orth, 
Cincinnati bad boy. He suffered a fractured leg. The referee asserted all events on the wrestling program were planned in advance, including the throwing of various combatants from the ring and swatting of the referee. He alleged he was not notified, however, that he was to be tossed out of the ring and that he was unprepared for the jolt. Well, this kind of goes back to an earlier discussion about referees that you're not used to, referees that you don't want to work with. Here's a referee that claims he didn't know he was going to be thrown out of the ring. He was, and he broke his leg. What happens in that situation when you're dealing with a referee and the only thing to do is to throw them out of the ring or get them out of the way, move them, and they're not prepared, they're not ready, they haven't been trained, whatever it may be? Well, see, back in the 30s, who the fuck knows what was going on? This guy could have just been hot at the fucking referee and just decided to throw him out of the ring. It could have been a fucking spot that he was told about beforehand, but he fucked up and took the bump wrong and broke his leg and Sam Avey wouldn't pay for it. So now, okay, motherfucker, well, I'll get you. Um, who knows what happened, but under normal circumstances, you know, the way you are thrown out of the ring, if, if it's done the proper way, if you break your leg, it's your fault because you took the bump wrong. But if this guy just fucking launched him, and who knows, I, I don't know that throwing out of the ring was a, a, a heavily practiced and perfected spot back in the 30s. Uh, who knows what would have happened? But yeah, I can see this right now. He said, oh, my leg's broke. I can't go to work, Sam. Well, I ain't going to pay for it. Well, fuck you. I'll sue you. No, that may have happened. We'll have to uh, see what we can find out. But Jim, we're going to end in the news this week with an old super podcast classic, something I read on the air many, many moons ago here on the show. And now we're going to ask you to take a look at this. Let's go to Syracuse, the Post Standard from 1996. From Fiji with love comes Superfly. The voice is part whisper, part rasp, and all very friendly, kind of like a warm South Pacific breeze. And the words, oh, those. Ask Jimmy Snuka, make that the superfly Jimmy Snuka, a question, and you pretty much receive a magnificent jumble of mystical yammering that might be considered serious baloney even in Fiji, this man's confessed place of birth. Appreciation and paying attention is the most valuable thing to get you there, brother. Jimmy responded to an inquiry about, about, well, I forget now. To get there is another thing coming upon that. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's my whole true feeling on that subject, brother. If you care, there's a spirit. And if there's a spirit, then you've got faith in something. Uh-huh. <laughs> the discernible news is that the Superfly, in New Jersey at the time, rather than in a tide pool, did willingly come to the telephone the other night. Give him that. And with his pending descent upon Syracuse on his mind, he did share a bit of his philosophy. Brother, slow down, Jimmy said. You're way ahead of my brain. All I need to know is that when I get in there, I must be there and beware. Yeah, the Superfly is coming to town, and he's coming for two grand reasons. One, he's planning to kick some sorry creep sorry butt, and number two, in the process, he's going to help raise money for Mercy Flight Central, Central New York's nonprofit 24-hour helicopter ambulance service. Now, at this point, Jim, I'm going to jump in because you don't have to read the plug from 1996. So let's now go where we will continue the article at the word Indeed. At the end of uh, paragraph three. Indeed. This will be professional wrestling the way it was meant to be. That is full grown men in tights and feathers throwing business associates off turnbuckles. And if it can raise a buck for a worthy cause, all's the better. Our profession is the greatest thing in the world, brother, Snuka said. Professional wrestling will always be. It will always, always be. While there may be some pencil neck geeks out there who would disagree with Jimmy's view, preferring, oh, the theater or art or the symphony to the blue collar ballet that can be found inside the celebrated squared circle. The fact of the matter is that the Superfly has provided his fans with some memories. 
This, even if he has chosen to be particular with his recollections. Question. What has been the highlight of your career? Superfly. My most memorable night, brother, was when I wrestled in Madison Square Garden and I dove off, off the peak of the world and was still flying. <laughs> Question. When was that? Superfly. Brother, you'll have to find out for yourself. I'd rather not mention names. <laughs> Question. But you came into the ring from an exceptional height? Superfly. That's the question I'm still trying to answer, brother. <laughs> but it was lovely. <laughs> the story is that Jimmy Snuka was born on one of Fiji's 800-plus islands and that he grew up to be a cliff diver of renown. While that job did yield the odd pearl, it did not consistently provide three squares a day. So Jimmy turned to professional wrestling, where he made his name coming in high and often. Boy, there's a line for you. <laughs> and with, with his long black hair flying from the top rope. Hence the Superfly, who claims after all these years, and he was not about to admit exactly how many, to be the world's greatest wrestler. Question, so who's number two? Superfly, brother, nobody is number two. Question, if you are number one, why didn't you ever wrestle for the belt? Superfly, in your heart and everybody else's, you know, and you want to know why, brother, because you know I love you, and all I needed was the spirit, brother. Question, huh? <laughs> Superfly, brother, you better get on the phone and let the people around the world know that I'm talking to you. I didn't wrestle for the title, brother, because I never really needed it. The voice was part whisper, part rasp, and all very friendly. Jimmy Snuka. Headed for Syracuse and a top rope at the fairgrounds, had offered his baloney thick as usual, and a conversation needed to end. It was time, after all, to concentrate on Friday's match. So many creeps' butts to kick, so little time. So, Jim, if you were the promoter and you had to pick a wrestler not to speak to the press, who would you pick? Superfly Jimmy Snuka, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I... I never, now that you've, now that I think about it, I have spoken to Jimmy Snuka in the past, but I never had any type of conversation with him. Hello, Superfly. Hello, brother. You know, that type of thing. But I don't know. I, I never knew him when he was in the business. We were never in the same place at the same time until the WWF and it was the 90s. And so I never knew him when he was young, 70s, 80s, a huge fan of his work. But I don't know whether his brain was always fried or not. Had you seen him when he was in Mid-Atlantic in the late 70s oh. originally? Oh, my God, yes. When, when, when Crockett started running Cincinnati, me and Weasel Dooley used to go up all the time. And when he was, because they had so many guys in the territory, you would only see the same guys every, you know, one or two, out of every two or three shows. But when he was on the card, that was the highlight. I mean, my God, he was ripped. He looked incredible. The way he moved for a guy that size and that muscular like a cat and the dives. And when they would throw him out of the ring, talking about getting thrown out of the ring, I've never seen anybody do this like this. He would be thrown and from halfway in the ring, he would just launch himself and turn and go backwards through the second and top rope. And on his way through the ropes, he would brush the ropes enough with his hands to be able to turn himself to where he could kind of land with his feet under him on the floor. But you couldn't tell how he was doing it unless you had a really good eye, which I did. And it was just it just the athleticism was amazing. And a guy that size and looked like that and believable and the work and the body language. Holy shit. But not the promos. Not the promos. Case in point, from Fiji with love comes Superfly from the Syracuse newspaper right here. But Jim, with that. We have wrapped up another edition of In the News, this anniversary show edition of In the News. How would you like to sign off? 
Happy anniversary. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast a great friend of the show, the historian and writer and journalist, I should add, Fumi Saido. Fumi, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? Hello from Tokyo. Hello from New Jersey. It's good to talk to you once again, <laughs> Fumi. Very um, good. You know, we got such a tremendous reaction the last time you were on the show, and we talked a lot about the history ah. of Japanese wrestling, specifically centered on Baba and Inoki, because really, from 1960 yep. on... Two kings. And from yeah. 1960 on, you could tell the story of Japanese wrestling in many ways by telling their story. And we got up to the strong Kobayashi versus Antonio Inoki match, which was a big deal. All right. Kobayashi All right. Well, we can from- go back to, okay. Seven, 1972, both Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki opened, okay, Giant, Giant Baba opened All Japan Pro Wrestling. Antonio Inoki opened New Japan Pro Wrestling. Both opened that in 1972. So that was very much the beginning of the real war. And Inoki had no TV for that first year, correct? First year, that's right, that's right. Then Baba left, but he left, you know, the, the old Nippon Pro Wrestling Company with TV deal with him. So uh, old company lost the TV, and Baba had the Channel 4, Nippon TV, NTV, right from the get-go. And Mitsubishi. And Mitsubishi as a big sponsor, and basically all the NWA backups, too. So last time, like I said, we got to strong Kobayashi versus Noki, but to take a step back, to go to Baba, yeah. in 74, mm-hmm. Baba in December gets the NWA world title. Now, this is something that had Jack, been elusive. Beating Jack Briscoe. Beating Jack Briscoe in Japan, not in Tokyo. Yeah. It's always interesting. None of Baba's uh, wins were in Tokyo. Right, but that was a TV week. See, they used to have five, six-week tour, go around, you know, go around Horn and had a long tour. So Kagoshima is a relatively big city, and uh, he had a title defense in, in one week later in another city on television. So he had the successful title defense against Jack Bristol. And mysteriously enough that the, the match, Baba lost the title back to Jack Bristol was not televised. Why was that? Yeah, but Baba didn't want to show it. <laughs> Did they film in a it? losing title. Uh-uh, they didn't even film it. And it was in a black and white page in the back of the magazine, too. I, I remember very clearly that the pay, color, big color pages in wrestling magazine, Bob winning a title was just jumping neck records, you know, the whole thing. And following week, he, he defends his own PWF title and NWA title, both in one match, and beat Jack Briscoe successfully for the you know very first title defense. And about five days later, non-televised, uh, match, he dropped the title back to Jack Frisco before he went home. But it was not even televised. How was it covered in the Japanese press, Giant Baba winning the NWA uh, title? Uh, it, like I said, that was in the black and white page instead of big news color page. And he was in the end of the magazine saying, oh, 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 that's what happened. And then uh, they didn't even acknowledge it on TV that much. Interesting, huh? Interesting. I mean, at this time, you brought up the PWF title. At this time, mm-hmm. Baba... You know, in many ways, the each promotion, or maybe I should actually say, to be accurate, each channel had their own champion. Yeah. You had the PWF champion, but Inoki by this time made the deal with Johnny Powers for the NWF yes. world title. What actually, was the story with the NWF world title? That was actually December of 1973. This is the same year that the Inoki and Sakaguchi got the Channel 10 deal. Uh, now Channel 5, but the TV Asahi, you know, that uh, new company. It's in New Japan, but. Uh, now they got the TV capital and uh, 
weekly television show on prime time and it just that was beginning of Inoki there too. In December of nineteen seventy three, he beat Johnny Powers in Tokyo and became NWF world heavyweight champion. World, huh? But the NWF was almost <laughs> like a dece- deceiving naming, you know? NWF? It must be kind of good from America, you know? He did not want to create New Japan World Heavyweight Championship. It had to be something actually come from America and have some history to it. And Johnny Powers at the time was fairly recognizable kind of champion type, wasn't he? I mean, you know, in Buffalo, in Cleveland, in Ohio, Johnny Powers was a big deal. Was the NWF seen as anything in Japan, though? Did anyone know much about it before Enoki brought it over? NWF? Yeah. Well, uh, the monthly, you know, pro wrestling magazine and gang, you know, monthly gang magazine, both magazines were monthly at the time. But uh, yes, they covered NWF title, like Ernie Ladd, Abdullah the Butcher a little bit, and uh, Johnny Powers, of course. It was on magazine. Yeah, so not as, oh, yeah, of course not as big as NWA or AWA or WWF or anything like that, but it was one of the, Regional, but still world heavyweight title coming from America. So there's two big things in New Japan in 73, Inoki setting himself up for the world stage or trying to with the NWF title. And also that's the year he finally gets Sakaguchi, right? Yes. Yes. Spring of 73. Sakaguchi along with like people like young K- Kengo Kimura, young Killer Khan. Yeah. Two or three guys together. And uh, yes. Inoki already had one in the New, New Japan for one year, and the, the company, you know, became pretty big. Also, 73, um, October of 73, there was a very historical tag team match. When you say real world tag team championship match or something, when you say real world tag team league, you think about all Japan's December thing yeah. every year, right? But the real tag team match, they use this, this very name, uh, New Japan used that name for it, you know, first. It was October of 1973, Inoki Sakaguchi against Karl Gachi and Ruth F. That was the very, uh, ep- you know, epic match. By that time, Ruth S is obviously a legend because of the, I mean, he went back all the way to Ricky Dozan, and those matches were legendary over there. And, and, and at the time, Seth was like a 53 already. Yeah. Gachi was like a 49 probably, yeah. But how was but these, they how were they seen by the fans though? Were they seen as old men or were they seen as credible fighters still? Real legend in wrestling, yes. Like somebody that just nobody can emulate. Historical figure, Luthes and Korogach both. In fact, I was at the building that night, old sumo palace, and I was like sixth grade. I walked around. The, the, I remember this very clearly. The, you know, two out of three match, first fall was Ruthes' Greco-Roman backdrop pinning Sakaguchi. Second fall was Sakaguchi with atomic drop, you know, like about back on atomic drop. Atomic drop, Ruthes, and pin him one, two, three. And the third fall, Japanese leg roll, you know, that the victory roll, sunset flip thing, you know, keep pinned Korogachi. What was amazing was, though, there was no, you know, what do you call it, uh, saving. You know, somebody does a big move and, you know, your team, you know, partner comes in and kick the guys in the back and right. you, know, you break the count. Save the count. None of that happened. None have no interference during it. It's like, a, wow, different kind of tag team match. You know, just two guys wrestling and bring one guy to your corner. You tag out, tag in. 
just no interference, just plain wrestling. You know, n- n- no dirty trick, nothing. Just like, wow, this is what New Japan wanted to you know, present. And uh, it was really something like a really sports, like uh, elegance, you know, like grace and a very high class pro wrestling kind of thing. If you know what I mean. Yeah. When did Carl Gotch establish himself in Japan? When did he become a legendary figure to the Japanese fans? 1962, first, first trip to Japan. It was on third annual World League tournament, 1962. That's the very first tour. That Carl Gotch was already a big deal. That, you know, one single match against Ricky Dawson, uh, draw. And also, he had a 12 single match series against Yoshimura. And that was the very tour that Carl Gotch introduced his German suplex, something that people have never seen. So beautiful, right? <laughs> I must sound like a, you know, like a Carl Gotch fan club, but. Uh, it was shocking to me, you know, so I grew up watching people like Billy Robinson and Carl Gotch, you know. So, uh, see, one of the chances, if you watch Jan Baba's Channel 4, All Japan Pro Wrestling, every week as a kid, it's Abdullah the Butcher every week, you know. And I think that the television uh, code, like back then there was no PG, there was no R, there's no classification kind of thing on television. It was all, always bloody, you know, Abdullah the Butcher's bloody match on regular television, you know, during the 70s. I don't think you can show that on television today. And when was All Japan on? What was their time spot? Eight o'clock Saturday night. So that's prime time Saturday night. You have Abdullah the Butcher running around yeah, on TV much. with a fork. Yeah. Yeah, bloody. <laughs> <laughs> and Friday night, yeah, Friday night, Channel 10, TV Asahi is Antonio Inoki's New Japan. 73 on. And with Carl Gotch, it's interesting, too, because he's in that tournament at the end of 73. And, of course, he had previously been aligned with the IWE. And he had been there with Monster Rusimov before Andre the Giant became Andre the Giant. Yeah, Billy Robinson. Yeah, actually, he had two more trips before that with Nippon Pro Wrestling, you know, Ricky Dalton's company. And also, he had spent one year in Japan between 68 into 69 as a head coach of Nippon Pro Wrestling. He had lived here for one year, Kogach, between 68 and 69. How much did that one year mean towards cementing his legacy? Uh, He was already a big deal, but that's why he was brought in as a head coach of the Nippon Pro Wrestling. You know, the trained, you know, retrained Inoki then, and also trained people like Kim Dark, Mr. Hito, Adachi, uh, Samson Kutsuada, and all the young guys who was at the dojo back then, all trained by Carl. Carl did not work tours, but he worked as a head coach at the Nippon Pro Wrestling Dojo. Then he went to Hawaii to live. Then he was brought into IWE from Hawaii. How much did he change the way people were actually being trained already in the dojo? Oh... It's hard to say because, number one, I wasn't there, you know, but uh, from, from the people who, um, there's always like a Korogach follower and non-Korogach fans out here, you know. Some people say he was the god of wrestling and some people say, no, he was not that good, you know. I'm <laughs> like more, yeah, I'm, a, but I'm like a true believer that that's something I really watched as a kid 
and I fell in love with the wrestling because of Korogatz pretty much. That this guy had class. He wrestled so slick. And also, up until like mid 60s, into late 60s, Americans were bad guys and Japanese were baby faces, right? So, it, it, people like Billy Robinson and Korogatz changed that. Not really changed, but the, those two are like exception, you know, big gaijin from another country, but this guy wrestled clean. And Billy Robinson even team up with Japanese people for IW you know, TV. So it's a good guy gaijin. You know, it's like a new concept almost. And also, it was all written on Korogach. It was all written that uh, how he helped Antonio Inoki to open the company in 1972, at, at the end of, uh, beginning of 1972, without any help from a major American company or Nippon Pro Wrestling was blocking all the American talent from coming in. And Inoki had nobody's help but Carl Gatches, you know, and Carl brought his friends over in not-so-famous wrestlers, you know, in the Bill Dromo, that uh, Red Pimpernel, you know, that uh, Abe Jacob or... Like, or Bob Armstrong, or this is like Carl could not bring in like superstars from America, you know, so just his friends. But he went back, you know, he came out of retirement and worked in the ring too during this very beginning of the New Japan era. And uh, he was, you know, still good 49, 50, 51 yeah, he was years old. Oh, yeah. I think so, yeah. Then he, his legacy comes back a little bit later on in the early 80s because he, he trained Fujiwara, you know, and Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama, Akira Maeda, Nobuhiko Takada, all those UWF guys to be. He, they were all trained under Carl Gotch in, in Florida. So his legacy lived on. But that's the subject that we can cover, you know, another time. Just talk about Carl Gotch <laughs> the entire, entire hour. So it's very important because he is still considered God of rest in Japan to this day. Well, I will take you up on that offer, Fumi. We will do another episode all about Carl Gotch. But <laughs> to go back yeah. to this story okay. here, you know, Inoki now yeah. has the NWF, which he buys. Baba is the PWF so, champion, but he has the NWA affiliation. Inoki, at first, he can't get into the NWA. And then finally, New Japan's allowed yeah. in, but Inoki's not allowed to be a voting member. They won't, <laughs> they won't let Inoki vote right. on who the champion is. But Anoki forms the relationship with Vince McMahon Sr. How does that happen? Yeah. He, he, Vince McMahon Sr. came over as early as 1974. And at the end of that uh, singles tournament, you know, Inoki didn't have many named Americans. That uh, The tournament final for 1974 tournament was like Inoki against Carl you know, Kraft, something like that. But the Vince came in. I don't know how, but uh, he himself came in and you know, signed the deal. And two years later, that would lead into Inoki Ali match in America. The you know, relationship with McMahon, very important. But he didn't get prime talent, and one of the big cases is Bruno. Bruno is McMahon's heavyweight champion. Uh, Bruno, Bruno refuses no, no, to no, work no. against Giant Baba. Was that a big deal that Inoki couldn't get Bruno? Um... People didn't really anticipate Inoki against San Martino match as much as they would watch, you know, Baba against San Martino. You know, they've already done that. In 1968, uh, 67 and 68, two years in a row, Baba against San Martino for Nippon Pro Wrestling Stadium Show. 
And it was all written up, even in the Baba's comic book, Baba and Bruno San Martino, best friends in America and in Japan. And uh, I guess that the story helped people understand the relationship. But all in all, Bruno did not come for Inoki. You know, he was able to say no to Vince Sr., you know, he was loyal to Baba's friendship, which is good. And, uh, yeah, everybody else came. You know, oh, actually, Bruno San Martino and Gorilla Monsoon are the two that, who were friends with Baba personally and did not take up the offer. But everybody else came. Eventually, Pedro Morales, oh, well, after Bob Backlund, everybody from WWE and WWF came to New Japan. But all the affiliate you know, kind of remained strong, I think. This is also the beginning of a period of time where there's a relationship that forms and stays pretty tight for several years between the McMahon Wrestling Office, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and, Japan. and the Los yeah. Angeles Office. It seems like Mike LaBelle's in the mix all the time. Yeah, and then the most wrestlers stopped in, in L.A. and filled up the dying Olympic auditorium shows. Yeah, guys like I mean, Paul Ondorf, the Tom Rocco, the Tony Atlas, the... Uh, oh, of course, Andrew the Giant and uh, Nikolai Volkov, Iron Sheik. Yeah, they pretty much came. I don't know, I am Mike Sharp, all the guys, oh, Adrian Adonis, Jesse Ventura, Tiro Santana. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Coming through LA and going to Japan, from Japan back to America, and stop in LA, and then go back to where you were, wherever you were. Yeah, they were doing that for years and years. When did Madison Square Garden? start series well not not series but when did madison square garden as a building as an entity start gaining uh status amongst japanese fans obviously once you launch the madison square garden series once enoki can appear at madison square garden it's a whole nother thing but i believe it was as early as 1964 baba against bruno san martino that was on newspaper i mean regular newspaper was it a big deal when you would hear about Giant Baba back then main eventing in a place like New York at Madison Square Garden? Yeah, yeah, Madison Square Garden, famous building. And also, completely, you know, aside from wrestling, there was, a, you know, the school kids had this sports bag, you know, like a gym bag, says Madison Square Garden. That was like a big thing in Japan. So all the kids had this sports gym bag, says Madison Square Garden. Really? So the name, yeah, yeah, I had one too. Gym bag, you know, that says Madison Square Garden. For some reason, you know, it's something, you know, kids have certain bags, right? And it was big. Everybody had to have it. And there was a sports bag, you know, that the Navy Blue Sports, you know, gym bag. Madison Square Garden, New York, you know, New York City. So so everybody knew Madison Square Garden. Fumi, at this period of time, when you have Inoki and Sakaguchi, and All Japan yeah. is Baba and Jumbo Saruto, who we haven't even talked Jumbo about yet. Is... And Destroyer. And they're there. Are there fans that are fans of both promotions, or are a lot of fans fans of only one of the promotions? Uh, I think all the kids watch both shows like I did. Friday night, New Japan Pro Wrestling Channel thing for Inoki and Inoki's people. And Friday, I mean, Saturday night, you watch Jan, Baba, and all the American superstars. Real wrestling fan, like, you know, like a real maniac, you know, like a read everything, watch everything, always kind of wished Inoki, New Japan, got all the Baba's American wrestlers, you know, have Dory Funk, Terry Funk, Mill Maskers, yeah, you, you name, you just Wahoo McDaniel, everybody, everybody you read in magazine, they come. 
as they wrestle like what you read in the magazine. Whereas, I didn't realize this until I was a little older. Inoki, for Inoki's side, Baba treat American baby face, pretty, pretty much baby face in Japanese ring too. Whereas Inoki bringing, say, people like Pedro Morales, big baby face from, from America, and make them heal here in Japan. American Dream Dusty Rose coming to New Japan, have a single match against Inoki. He's doing heal. You know what I'm saying? It just kids didn't say, I, I didn't understand that back then, but now I realize. Wow, Inoki was making these American babyface a heel work in, in Japan. That was something, I felt something was definitely wrong, you know? But, uh, yeah, so for Inoki, you beat these guys, whomever they are from America, big name talent, babyface or heel, heel. It's all heel for, you know, against Inoki. Well, it seemed like Inoki had a long-term plan to... Yeah. Make himself look a certain way. That appearance was a big deal to him. That setting himself up was a big deal to him. Of course, that leads us right into the famous 1976 Ali Anoki match. And oh, God, yeah. We've talked so much about it from the American perspective. I'd love to hear what it was like to be in Japan during that period of time. Oh, it was a real, real big deal. Yeah. All the regular newspaper, all the regular sports news on television regular newspaper, then sports paper, and you pick up at the train stations, every major, not just major, but all the newspaper, all the magazine, all the television news covered Inoki against Ali. Of course, they treated, you know, treated the thing like wrestling, you know, like a satire, you know, ridiculed it, you know, and also... They did? Well, hold on, I didn't know that. In Japan, they ridiculed it before the fight? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was, and after the fight too, nobody knew well, what that I can't blame them would for, look but... like. Yeah, yeah. After, yeah, but it took forty years, you know, to re, re evaluate the match. If you watch Inoki against Ali match now, actually, it's a lot more interesting than you thought, you know, because yeah. we've watched MMA now that we have more knowledge to. What would happen to you know that the, the, the actual real shoot situation? Put these two guys in the same ring. What's going to happen? And after UFC and the MMA, we have eyes for it. But back then, nobody knew what it would be like, and uh, there was no action. And uh, yeah, it was a laugh of town. You know, every newspaper. Hey Fumi, real quick before we get back to Ali, I got to yeah. ask you. We're talking about shoots. So many of my yeah. listeners and so many wrestling fans in general, because clips have gone yeah. around, Bill Burr, the comedian, talked about it, have fallen in love with the clip yeah. of Anoki versus the great Antonio. Ah, yeah. What do people in Japan say about that match? Is it something that people were also fascinated with, this guy not cooperating Actually, and Anoki just... it was not one of one of very famous Inoki match at all. Great Antonio was... That, that was his second trip. First trip, yes... Uh, great Antonio became very famous. It was the same trip that Carl Gotch was on. Uh, Ricky Dozen's third annual World League tournament, spring of 1962. Great Antonio, Dr. Uh, Bill Miller as Mr. X, and Carl Gotch, all those guys on the tour. And as a freak show attract, Great Antonio pulled the big, huge, you know, like a Greyhound like bus in front of people. He, he pulled yeah. the bus over. And, monster thing he got over and that got to his head and i guess <laughs> carl, Ga carl gotcha and bill miller taught him some lesson and sent him home 
in the middle of the tour. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fam- fam- real famous story. And some some 15, 20 years later, some <laughs> somebody somebody discovers, you know, great Antonio from Montreal somewhere and uh, send them over. Then, then, then uh, great Antonio had, had attitude, huh? And he was the, actually, somebody should ask Pat Patterson, this second trip of great, great Antonio's, Pat Patterson was on tour. He did the major rib on great Antonio. What was and the major rib? I hope, um, peeing, everybody got up and peed into the bucket and uh, they soaked that soaked great Antonio's t-shirt into everybody's piss oh, God. and gave him, yeah, gave him back to great Antonio and he wore it. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of them. That's one of them. But, uh, Pat Patterson's, you know, famous story in Japan. Actually, Inoki and Pat Patterson was really tight friends, very good friends. That's why Inoki and San Francisco and Inoki and LA had relationship when nobody else in the NW would ally with Inoki. It was because of Pat Patterson? Pat Patterson was in San Francisco at the time. Yeah. And Mike LaBelle's office in LA. Those two officers were the one helping Inoki out during the early part of the 70s. Every place else in, in, like in Midwest, Southern, even Florida. A little bit later on, Eddie Graham and you know, Inoki made a deal through Hiro Matsuda. But the first half of 1970s, San Francisco and Mike LaBelle's LA, and a little bit of Detroit in Chic and Montreal Rougeau's, those are the only people who helped Inoki then. Hey, Fumi, before we move on with this, as we're on the topic of, uh, you know, some of the guys who were there in the 60s, I've got to ask you, because I know his daughter yeah. listens to the show, what can you tell me about Pampero Furpo in Japan? Pampero Furpo was in 12th Annual World League Tournament in 1970, I believe. And uh, he was actually, uh, Pampero Furpo was actually uh, like uh, attending the convict. You know, the, was Stan, Stan Frazier, Frazier, the convict. Yeah, yeah. As the he was the, one of the main attraction of that tour. You know, with jailhouse, you, know, you got a you know <laughs> uniform, whatever jumpsuit. Yeah, right. The whole whole the entire body. The prison stripes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And he put the chain, and it was walked by Pompeo Furpo. So, so, if he was not tied with the convict. Pompeo Furpo had probably better tour, you know, more, I don't know. He himself could shine. But uh, during that very tour, Pompeo Furpo was pretty much used as the convict's manager. Yeah, so, uh, and there's a good example of what you're talking about because uh, the convict was out of Los Angeles at that time, wasn't he, Michael Bell? Right, right, right. Yeah, because Los Angeles and Japan had always had a relationship. Supposedly, Ricky Dozan beat Lou Fess for the very beginning of international heavyweight title. Remember? 1978? Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, Sharp Brothers, the very first tour, like a very grand opening of Japanese wrestling, that the San Francisco's world tag team champions, Mike and Ben Sharp Brothers, came to Japan. You know, so always the West Coast. At the time, probably people had to stop in Hawaii, too, because, um, what's his name? Karasik. Al Karasik? Al Karasik owned, 
Al Karras yeah. owned Hawaii, yeah. and then he sold it to Ed Francis and James Blear. Right, right. At the time, he was also a big deal in Japanese ring, too, because he always attended American talent coming from America. I think most of the playing during 50s and into early 60s, you had to stop in Hawaii. Coming from LA or San Francisco, you stop in Hawaii, then come to Haneda. And uh, our carership made a lot of tours to Japan. So West Coast was always like, had a strong tie with Japanese wrestling scene, right from the beginning. Fumi, to move back to 76. Yes, yes, yes. Inoki and Ali have their fight. It's ridiculed, as you said, in the public after the fight. Does that help or hurt yeah. Giant Baba? Hurt? Oh, wow. It obviously helped Inoki, huh? Because everybody knew Inoki. When Inoki and Baba were together during late 60s into early 70s with Nippon Pro Wrestling, Inoki was clearly number two right underneath Baba. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But the, by having, after having this Muhammad Ali fight, he was the man. He was the man. Also, Inoki tried to have this, he is the toughest wrestler in the world type character, whereas Baba was being more of a attraction by then. Nobody thought, really, even as a kid, Baba was the toughest wrestler. But from some reason, he will always win and beat famous Americans. Whereas Inoki always have what the Tiger Jeet sing all year long. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like just every week. It was like when I was a kid, Inoki against Tiger Jeet Jeet Singh. <laughs> yeah. Either if it was a lumberjack match or a last man standing or no DQ match or uh, any stipulation, but ended up being Inoki against Tiger Jeet Singh. I'll tell you, when I started getting Japanese wrestling tapes and started seeing the older stuff, Tiger Jeet Singh mm -hmm. looks so amazing in photos. And then when you yeah. watch the matches, it's a whole nother story. <laughs> For me, at least. <laughs> okay. Okay. But it was what you watch every week, though. You know, that's Inoki show. Inoki show, you know? And uh, Tiger Jeet Singh is a bad guy. You know, he's just uh, Inoki's opponent, regular opponent, all year long. Sometimes bringing some tag team partners, sometimes six-man tag team, but it's always Inoki and Inoki's guy against Tiger G-Sing and Tiger G-Sing guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's okay. You know, it's a regular guy, you know? So you don't think he's any good, huh? No, I can't get into Tiger G-Sing matches. I just think it's, um, I don't know if awful is the correct word. Terrible might be the uh, right word. But you see photos of him, or sometimes you see a video package where it's clips, and he's amazing. Yeah. And then once the match you know happens, what? it's, you know. If you watch Roman Reigns every week, it might be like Tiger G. Singh. He's always on TV and he always wins somewhat. somewhat. You know, he's always featured. Dean, Dean Ambrose. You know, somebody like that, you know. It may not be that exciting. It doesn't do yeah. so much, you know, a that whole may, lot in the ring. This may be why I don't watch Raw. <laughs> you may be explaining it all to me right now. But before yeah. we go on a big dissertation yeah. on uh, on all this, let's get yeah. back to Japan. And we brought mm -hmm. up uh, Jumbo Saruta. And, of course, he's a major yeah. cog in the wheel, and he ends up being the number two to Giant mm -hmm. Baba. Very quick. Talk Very about quick. Jumbo Saruta. Talk about how he came up and how the fans took to him. He, he, I think people's eyes... Inoki was just hitting a prime, right? Inoki was just hitting a prime time in this beginning of the 70s. And Baba was 
like turning 40. And he, for everybody's eyes, yes, he's getting older. He's always slow. And he brought in Olympic, you know, golden rookie, Jumbo Tsuda, much like your Kurt Angle or somebody, or Brock Lesnar or somebody that you bring in as rookie as your main event. It was new in the formula that he was putting in, in the title match picture right away. Baba Jumbo Tsuda against the Funks up against, you know, this international tag team title program. And he's just fit right in. It just didn't even look like rookie. He worked like veteran from first year on. Amazing. Jumbo was like that. And he was tall. And uh, the giant Baba and Jumbo Tsuda is yeah. just fit. Yeah. So uh, he was star from the day one. Yes. And what about in New Japan, Tatsumi Fujinami? It took Fujinami a little, you know, little longer. He, yeah, he, he became what WWF uh, Junior Heavyweight Champion the yeah. uh, January of 78, 77, 78, I believe. At the same time, Bob Backlund came. So that he came in like a half decade later in Junior Heavyweight Division. Smaller guy have chance now. He looked pretty small on television right back then. With lean, yeah. everything. You know, he works different, you know. Uh, different, you know, works different. Like a mini Inoki, but he had different moves. And uh, he was a star. He was a star, definitely. But it took him a little while, you know. And always worked against smaller guys. And you, you're like a cruiserweight division. We, we have junior heavyweight divisions. But it opened up a door to smaller Japanese talent, you know, coming along. And they don't you have Tiger Mask, much smaller person, you know? So it was good to have two divisions. Yeah, but with Bob Backlund, obviously he would end up coming over to Japan quite frequently. Yeah. How do they cover mm -hmm. how do they cover it in Japan the nineteen seventy nine title change oh, with Anoki? Wow. How do you guys talk about it over there? It was it's like now it came out and I think I I myself have written what I've known and what I've observed. And uh, what I picked up and the pieces of puzzle that uh, back then, it was like Inoki won the title in Tokushima. Okay. He beat Bob Backlund. Obviously got the belt that night. And five nights later, back in Tokyo, he had a very first title defense against Bob Backlund. Taiga Jit Singh in affairs. Uh, DQ win by Inoki. Okay. So Inoki actually defended the, the title. But he was not happy with this. This is the story, okay? But I have to go over it. He was not happy with this result of DQ ending, and he forfeit the title. You know, he never lost the title against Bob Backer. He for, forfeit the title. He, he returned. He was not happy that the Tiger G. Singh interfered, and he gave up the title. So that was the story in Japan. And two weeks later, back in America, the Bob Backlund goes into ring without belt, without belt, okay? At Madison Square Garden. Was, at Madison Square Garden. It was announced in America, Texas Death Match against Bobby Duncan. In Japan, it was announced it was title up for grab. Bob Backlund against Bobby Duncan happened in America. And at the end of the night, Bob Backlund got the belt back, and people in America thought it was Texas Death Match. And the, the press in Japan, wrestling press, of course, pr printed that as 
this match title, the championship was up for grab. Bob Backlund beat Bobby Dankum to become once again WWE champion. And same night, Inoki had a match. He had to have a match against Iron Sheik for his World Martial Arts title. Hussein Arab. He had the match. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that was the story it was written. And they kept it like about two decades. (laughs) You always hear different things. And in America, I've heard everything from Inoki double-crossed Backlund on losing the title. Um, Double-crossed is half real because to this day, Vince McMahon probably thinks Inoki is the person who double-crossed his father. Right, because there are stories about when Hogan would go over there, Vince Jr. would tell him, watch out, they may try to double-cross you. Specifically, uh, the story is that he warned him before the Fujinami match in 85. Yeah, because he, he did not return his title in the ring clean like Giant Babu would to Harley Race twice, you know. Um, once with Jack Briscoe, twice with Harley Race. At the end of the tour, he would be returning a title. But it was a big, big bit of a turn, you know, like a turnoff for hardcore fans. Big, yeah, it's great that uh, Giant Babu wins, you know, NW Heavyweight title from Jack Briscoe or Harley Race. One more time with Harley Race. But maybe five, four, you know, five nights later, somewhere there, Baba would drop the title before they left, you know, for the Amer- you know, for home, and uh, it was all written in, in a newspaper. As a result, uh, I knew Baba would lose, but Inoki did not go through that. I'm sure that he he promised WWE that he'll be returning a title before Baba back and went home, right? But he did not do so. You know, he gave people DQ finish. And seemingly he uh, he defended title, but he somewhat let go with it, you know, let go of it. And uh, for Inoki side, I returned the title. What are you talking about, right? Yeah, so that's how how I put together. Inoki did not do in the ring. There's no ego in Giant Baba's booking, and there's nothing but ego in Antonio Inoki's booking. <laughs> yeah, more trust between the boys, I think, and also. Harley Race would come up to Baba and say, "Can I loan, you know, like a, you know, like a, can I borrow some money?" And Baba would, you know, lend some money. That kind of friends, you know. Go to end of end of your conference in a, a convention in Las Vegas, and Baba is like paying for a lot of things for boys. You know, they ask, "I'll buy you dinner." Yeah, you can, you know, come and loan money. And Baba has that kind. I don't know boss, like old-fashioned He's a boss. promoter type. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a boss. Whereas Inoki wouldn't even attend the conference. You know? <laughs> he shows up and leaves. You know what I'm saying? My theory is that Antonio Inoki is professional wrestling's Mick Jagger. You know, he's more of a socialite yeah. <laughs> than the boss. Or Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan in one piece. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because he was a What performer. does that make Shinma? <laughs> Actually, just a figurehead, figurehead. Yeah, in my book, he is ridiculously overrated. Really? In my book, yes. We haven't talked about him really at all today, so tell me a little bit about pre-1983, Shinma's role in New Japan. More like uh, your general manager. General manager is about right, yeah. Yeah, But the old, Inoki's company, old, you know, always, always old, old mentality, though. If you're not a wrestler, if you haven't taken bumps in the ring, you can't say a thing. And at the time, Antonio Inoki was a producer and director and money guy behind it. 
and the creative director and a top performer, all in one, right? And he creates his fall. He creates his own angle. He creates his enemies, new characters, Tiger Jeet Singh, everybody. But uh, he could never publicly announce that. So like, uh, like your, the Sheik never announced he was a promoter. The Sheik. Right, Francis Fletcher. Yeah, and Dick the Bruiser didn't really you know, announce that he was decision maker. Even Harley Race in Kansas City, that you couldn't announce it. Whereas Baba, people already know, you know, that the, always knew that Baba was also a boss with his cigar in his mouth, you know? And uh, he was a promoter figure. But Inoki was top talent at all times. You needed figurehead, suit and tie, director, like a general manager type. So that's where Shima comes in. And Shima does the press conference. He announced everything. And the people will come and interview him. And he, may, you know, he makes comments. But uh, for, I think from what I gathered, after I become journalist, really, that he was more of a figurehead. And uh, Inoki was the one making decisions and just giving this to Mr. Shima. More like Lord James Bleers is the president of the Pacific Wrestling Federation. I believe so, and he was also a president of WWF, like in 1979. Right, right, that's right. They yeah, made him the president yeah. of that after yeah, uh, Willie Gilsenberg died. WWE, you know, in WWF, did he have an office in New York or Connecticut? No, it was printed, it was in logo, and yeah, in New Japan's logo, yes, such Jim, Jim uh, like uh, your COO, whatever, the top executive, but... Uh, I um, I think he's ridiculously overrated. To go back to 79, you brought up Baba having a good relationship with the NWA, loaning Harley Race money. What led to Giant Baba's 1979 NWA title run? Uh, Harley Race? Two more times. I think they did it just by do- between those two. And he did not really go through some machinic or anybody like that. Harley Race made his own decision. Third time, even so. You know, Baba wasn't even sure, but he was highly rested, let's do it, and then and, uh, he was safe to do the business, and uh, Baba had one more run. And he didn't do much, didn't have much that big of an impact for the third time. And sure enough that the people knew that he, Baba would be returning the belt like four days, five days later at the end of the tour. And sure enough, it happened. And Baba didn't do it And after that, though. he, If he really wanted to, he could have... Um, Harley Race put somebody like Jumbo Tsuda over for the NWA title, you know, in early 80s or something. But uh, Baba chose AWA title instead of NWA title to make Jumbo Tsuda your new star. Elevate him one more level, you know, not just uh, all Japan's ace, but uh, international superstar status. He had to win the major title. He was not NWA title. He was AWA World Heavyweight Title, beating Bakwenko in Japan. He, he actually had two long tours. One month tour, all the title defense in AWA territory, comes home, and he goes to America one more time and has a long tour, beating everybody, then put Rick Mate over at the end. By then, Jumbo Truda was established in a national superstar. We will definitely get to that. But that was there, There's so much yeah. from the 80s. You and I are going to have to do multiple parts on that. But going back to 79. Yeah, but the 70s, yeah, it's very important. If you don't have this 1978, 1979, none of these would happen. 
they don't. And of course, you know, we're talking about the rivalry between the two companies, the two channels, and of course the two men, Baba and Anoki. And although yeah. they are rivals, it's not like they're in the newspaper saying bad things about each other. In fact, sometimes you go back and you look at the old Japanese magazines, you'd be surprised yeah. knowing that here they are feuding, but they appear to be together with their entire roster accepting awards from the magazines in the same room together, sitting next to each other. And of course, in 1979... Was it the Tokyo Sports I mean, the conference? Sports award? Yeah. Yeah, once a year, though. Once a year, you get to see them together. I mean, you never got to see Vince McMahon sitting with Ted Turner once a year. So, right, of course, true. in 1979, this is also the year that you get to see them team up for the last time. I mean, no one knew it would be the last time officially, but it was the first time in many years, and it was the last time. Talk a little bit about last that time. and that show. That was uh, Tokyo Sports Newspaper's 30-year anniversary. You know, that uh, Tokyo Sports Paper was the one who put together the entire show. Summer of 1979, Baba and Inoki came up for the first time in seven years or so, and uh, it was actually the last time. And the candidate for their four, candidate for the opponent was devoted by people in the newspaper. And it was the Funks, but uh, all in all, it was Abdul the Butcher and Tiger Jitsin team up for the first time. And they, they, you know, they, they would do it again, you know, probably 10 years later for All Japan Ring, but it was kind of a big deal at the time. Abdul the Butcher from All Japan and Tiger Jeet Singh from New Japan teaming up for the first time. It, it really wasn't the first time. They did it in Australia. But uh, in Japan, very first time. Two top American bad guys against Baba and Inoki. That was a real big deal. At Tokyo, Nippon Budokan. Was it hard to convince Inoki and Baba to do it? Or was that just how much power the newspaper had? Um, pretty much the newspaper power at the time. Yeah. Tokyo sports. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when you think about it, yeah, it's pretty powerful, huh? Right. I mean, to be able to say, we want you guys to team up, not just work on the same show. Have your guys, have your guys on the same show would be one political issue, but to say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we want you guys to team up against the biggest gaijin heels that you each have. That's a pretty big deal. Right. Right. That's a pretty big deal then. Yeah. And it was... Tokyo Sports 30th anniversary show, and that was there was a theme. So if there wasn't any like good enough reason, Baba wouldn't sit in the sit in the table with Inoki. Inoki wouldn't sit in, in the same table with Baba at the time. So uh, yeah, I would say newspaper was pretty that the powerful then, 1979. But it was not televised. It was not televised. You know, it was Inoki has exclusive contract with TV Asahi. And Baba has exclusive contract with TV and uh, Nippon, Nippon TV uh, Channel 4. So neither one of them can be on television. But they taped it, though. And uh, the tape came out 20, 30 years later. Now, it, when Baba died, yeah, newspaper, uh, the, the regular news used that clip. It was never televised. With the television stations, obviously they had to deal with the different promotions. Were there other guys other than Baba and Anoki that had individual deals to be exclusive to a station? Oh, like Sakaguchi, Strong Kobayashi, Fujinami, yeah, and like yeah. top towns, yeah. All the top towns had, a, had an exclusive contract. Baba, Jambosura, Destroyer, you know, all those guys, top 10 talents from Baba's side had a contract with TV uh, channel four. Yeah. yeah, and obviously the Destroyer did a lot of television. Were there a lot of other guys in either company doing other television shows on the network during the day or during the weekend? Um, actually, uh, I mean, you, you talk about 
something besides the wrestling show itself, right? Destroyer yeah. was the, about the only one. Inoki was, yeah. Inoki made a lot of appearance on quiz shows and other, you know, like a cooking show or travel show and stuff like that. But Destroyer, Dick Fire, was pretty much the only one who appeared in, in the comedy shows and stuff like that. Yes, Destroyer was so famous. So famous. Mask guy, yeah, American guys who speak Japanese. Oh, he was like a major, major celebrity. Going back to 79, you know, it'd be easy to look at that show and see Baba yeah. and Anoki teaming up again and think everything's good, but it's almost like the calm right before the storm because right after that, yes. really the talent raids all start and then really maybe the most interesting and dynamic period in Japanese wrestling history when it's just an all-out war where guys are trying to oh, jump the, back and new, forth. New Japan stole old Japan talent and old Japan stealing new Japan talent. And I think there was a, yeah, we have to point out one more thing that uh, at the end of the night, 1979 All-Star Show, Baba Inoki against Taiga Jit Singh and, and Abdul the Butcher. Yeah. At the end of the night, Inoki grabbed the microphone and told Baba, next time we, we meet in the ring, you and I, you and I going against one-on-one. How about that? And Baba said, let's do it. Yeah, and then Baba grabbed the microphone and said, okay, let's do it. Never happened. Who would have wanted that match more? I don't know, Inoki. But Inoki has to go over and Baba wouldn't do it, right? right? Never happened. Even if you look at like this period of time, I mean, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, you talked about Jumbo before. Clearly, I think, you could tell me if I'm wrong, by the end of the 70s, Baba realizes he needs to phase himself out of the main event somehow. And he starts doing right. it. And it was Anoki yeah, never does. Giving it to, <laughs> never does. Inoki never does. Oh, not until like the 1990s something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the beginning of 1981, yeah, clearly, first move was that New Japan stole Abdul the Butcher from Old Japan. And yeah, Abdul the Butcher jumped. That was the first move. And, and that's a pretty and, major move because we now know oh, behind yeah. the scenes that it was that move yeah. that caused Stan Hansen to get the idea about maybe I shouldn't be in New Japan too much longer because now there's another guy in between me and the main event. And that led to Stan Hansen having the conversation with Terry Funk and Terry Funk having Stan Hansen and Baba talk. And that set the wheels in motion by the summer sure. for what was going to happen in December. But, okay, between, yeah, before Stan... Baba stole Taiga Jit Singh and Umanosuke Ueda, his partner, from New Japan to Old Japan. That was the same summer, 1981. Abdul the Butcher going to New Japan. Taiga Jit Singh from New Japan went to Old Japan. Then some, a couple more people in between. Yeah, That's a couple people trade, in between. Right? Oh, God, there was a two top talents yeah. who worked the All-Star Show in 79. Now, Taiga Jit Singh and Umanosuke Ueda, both of them, they went to old Japan, New Japan got the Abdul the Butcher. And two more talent in between, Dick Murdoch and Kim Dak, Taiga Toguchi from old Japan to New Japan the same summer. And um, The Murdoch one is Guerrero. surprising, I think. Yeah, and then he stayed with New Japan the rest of the time. Yeah. And uh, Taiga Toguchi, Kim Dak, and Chavo Guerrero Classic, you know, Chavo Guerrero Senior from New Japan to old Japan. So there was quite a few before Stan Hansen, December of 1981, very last night of real tag team tournament, 
the Funks, Dorian Terry against Rizzo Brody and Jimmy Snooker. And third person coming out of dressing room from Brody's dressing room, that was Stan Hansen. And uh, that was a very big, big deal. 1981. Were you there that night? No, I was in America. You were in America? Really? Yeah, that that was during the time I lived in Minnesota. Okay, I didn't know you lived in Minnesota. Get out of here. Yeah, between 79 and 84. And by uh, January 1981, I was already working for Japanese Wrestling Magazine out of Minnesota. Wow, so you got to watch lots of AWA action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, age of 19, I was already writing wrestling stories from America and contributing to Japanese Wrestling Magazine, you know, since then, 81, on to today. Well, the December 81 match, we'll close with this, and then we'll pick everything up next yeah. time we talk. But yes, sir. that match, to me, the visual of it, when you watch the video and you see them Same come way. out of the locker room, yeah, and you see that, yes, you hear the yeah. music playing, and you see them come out of the locker room, and you hear the announcer start screaming his name. Yeah, Stan Hansen, Stan Hansen, on street clothes. Was that easily much bigger than Abdullah jumping? Oh, I think so. Abdullah the Butcher, to take nothing away from him, Abdullah the Butcher, yes, major, huge superstar. But not in-ring work was not in his prime time any longer, huh? You know, because um, he, his major run was 70s into late 70s, you know, like a champion carnival against Baba, year after year, that the tour after tour, pretty much every tour, something with Abdullah the Butcher during 70s. But clearly, it was Stan Hansen's time. And Stan Hansen beat Antonio Inoki for NWF title. He had this legendary match at the Dan End Coliseum against Andre the Giant. Yeah, and then also tag team of Stan Hansen and young Hulk Hogan. Stan Hansen was the star of the team. And Stan Hansen was huge, huge major star with New Japan before he jumped to Old Japan. And then it was shocking that the big of the stars, Stan Hansen, he jumped, you know, and he joined force with Bruiser Brody and beating Tory Funk and Terry Funk. It just, that was his time. That was his run. And next 20 years, Stan Hansen, yes, was the biggest American superstar in Japan ever. Stan Hansen was the guy. Probably even bigger star than Bruiser Brody. That was probably part of the reason Bruce Brody left all Japan to, you know, to New Japan and have this important single match series against Antonio Inoki. But that's another subject for another day. Stan Hansen, yes, was the biggest superstar at the time. We'll definitely tackle Bruce Brody next time. But, you know, I love the visual at the end of the match, too, where Stan Hansen and Brody and Snuka have just beaten down the funks. It's chaos. People are screaming. And Baba oh. and Jumbo have to come out and save the company. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And also, people knew that there was a relationship, uh, Jumbo Tsuda and Stan Hansen in his their Amarillo days. Right, they were buddies. It was in the new. It was in all the all the wrestling magazines that young Stan Hansen and young Jumbo Tsuda spent time in Amarillo. Just the backstory was beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Now you're bigger and better, and and, and, and now we're just going against each other. What a story, huh? Wrestling, wrestling fans study history, basically, a lot. And basically, Japanese wrestling fans are more reading-oriented. And, uh, well, yeah, so we have to remember this is before Internet. 
people used to really, you know, dig deep into wrestling magazine, read everything, every page of it, and just learn, you know, history, backstories. And uh, yeah, even to this day, yes, Japanese wrestling fans are more reading oriented, you know. Well, as we close the segment for me, I guess we should mention uh, you just put out a new book in Japan. Talk a little bit about that before we uh, close. Yeah, about the Bruiser Brewery, yes. Yeah. It was return of like a return of Jedi almost, like a thirty year anniversary of untimely death of Bruiser Brewery. It was summer of nineteen eighty eight. Now it's two thousand eighteen. Exactly thirty years. And people remember the morning you heard the news. You know, it was 17th of July, 1988, 30 years ago. If you're 45 years old, he was, this kid was 15 years old. If you're 50 years old, you were 20 then. If you're 40 years old, you were 10 years old. And somewhat, somehow that morning, before you went to school or woken up by your mom or was woken up by your older brother, did you, hey, did you hear Bruiser Brody died? Every wrestling fan remember that morning. Where were you? Kind of like today. Um, I was in in, the da- in Dallas, Texas, and I uh, made phone calls to people. Before, it was before cell phone. It was before internet or email that you have to actually pick up a phone and talk to somebody. I heard the news. I heard the rumor Bruiser Brody had in the past. And I um, called so many people on the phone. Every phone number I dialed at the time, 30 years ago, it was busy. So I tried so many times, and somebody, you know, at, at the end, somebody picked up the phone. First thing they did say, did you hear it? I said, yes. Is that true? I think so. And we, that was the end of the conversation. Everybody knew. Everybody heard Brody had passed. And... uh it was really weird. It was before cell phone. It was before internet. It was before email. You really had to talk to somebody. And nobody was really sure, but they had heard about it. And, uh, yeah. So it was like people, most Japanese fans remember this, like the day John Lennon died, or the, the day Kurt Cobain died, or the Princess Diana died. Somewhere, somehow, I was at somewhere this, when I heard the news. So everybody associated with that. Summer day, 1988, when you heard the news, Brody passed. So it's like almost, almost has a romantic feeling to it. it is, of course, it's somebody's passing. It's tragic, you know, tragic death. But uh, Bruce Brody was so big, so huge, that uh, people remembered that morning. Like, the, you remember the day, you know, when you heard about John Lennon or somebody, you know. That's how it is in Japan. There you hear it, another informative segment on Japanese wrestling history with our pal Fumi Saido. You'll be hearing more from him in the weeks and months ahead. But now, it is time for Book of the Week! No, 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 Jim, not Mothership. Book of the Week! Book of the Week! Usually we have a book for Book of the Week, but this time we have multiple books and DVDs, action figures, restraining orders, burger towels, although I think those actually are gone now, T-shirts and so much more, of course. 
I'm talking about the fine items that you can find at Cornette's Collectibles. And who better to tell you about it for the holiday season than Mr. Jim Cornette? Jim, let the listeners know well, what they can get all. from you and how they can get no, it. No, no, it's, it's a huge, it's the huge, <laughs> incredibly popular holiday merchandise sale at jimcornette.com, folks. Just click on Collectibles and you will find a cornucopia of wrestling items, including the $9 Classic Wrestling DVD sale, the $10 Cult of Cornette membership certificates, the brand new Outlaw Mud Show t-shirt, deals and cheap prices on action figures, books, more stocking stuffers, gifts for the fan in your life. If, if you indeed, if you don't have a fan in your life that you want to give a gift to, you want to give something to yourself because you don't have anybody in your family that cares enough about you to buy you something, then fuck them. Don't leave them your money. Spend it on yourself right now at jimcornette.com. Of course, for any other book you desire, as well as pretty much any other thing in the world you desire, you can go to Amazon. And if you're going to do so, please use our show referral link, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. By using that link, you support this show because every single purchase you make, every item that you add to your cart after clicking that link, we get a little bit of love and support for from our good friends at Jeff Bezos's Amazon.com. So, hey, if you're going to make purchases for the holidays, if you're going to buy gifts for someone, whatever it may be, if you love this show and you realize, hey, I don't have to listen to a bunch of insulting ads on this show. It doesn't suck like all the rest. Then consider using tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows have popped up in the last three years since the Super Podcast was invented, and they want you to support them. You need to ask yourself, which show goes the extra mile? Which show delivers content that is informative as well as humorous with good audio quality and good guests and good hosts and no one sounds like shit? And I think the answer will be quite obvious. When you look at the entire litany of shows out there in the universe, beyond the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and you ask yourself, which show should I support? Them? Or us? I think the answer will be quite clear. Fuck those guys! Fuck those guys! Support the Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. And with that, Let's now go to another conversation I had with a very, very popular guest here on the show and a good friend of the show, Polish Joe Chupik. And we're going to talk about the AWA Team Challenge Series pilot that just recently popped up on the WWE Network. Polish Joe worked on that pilot. So we're going to get the inside scoop on what exactly was happening and what exactly they were thinking when they made this pilot. So without any further ado, let's go now to this conversation with friend of the show, Polish Joe Chupik. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast someone who I can truly say is one of our all-time most popular guests. People still talk about him to this day, and here he is, back here on the mothership, Polish Joe Chupik. Polish Joe, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, and I hope I can live up to that fantastic buildup, uh, even though we're not going to be talking about orgasmic Larry Nelson on this <laughs> No, we're not. And I'm glad that you brought him up instead of me, so it doesn't look like I'm forcing him down your throat. But yes, <laughs> we're not going to talk about Orgasmic Larry. Unfortunately, uh, Eric Bischoff was in the role of Orgasmic Larry and what we're going to talk about today, but we'll get there in a moment. Everyone has always talked about the AWA Team Challenge series. They remember being on AWA TV, where there was a point system and there were different teams, and you had to win. And in the end, in the pink studio, Jake the Milkman Milliman got the turkey, and I'm just... Everyone knows all about it. But recently, in the recent past, the last few weeks, the WWE has uploaded to their network the 
pilot, seemingly, of a completely different show, the AWA Team Challenge series show, which looks and sounds nothing like anything else the AWA ever produced. So obviously, I saw this. People have been going nuts about it, and I'm sure you know the obvious reasons why, and we'll talk about them, but everyone's talking about it. I figured you're the perfect guy to talk to about it because you must have been involved in this whole process. I was there at the conception, the birth, the entire process, and uh, some may say the all-too-long death of the Team Challenge series. Now, I'm not taking any credit or blame for developing (laughs) the Team Challenge series, but I was there for every step of the way in that. Pilot was a rather interesting, (laughs) interesting production in itself. I want to know all about it because I'm fascinated with this entire video after I watch this. But I have to know, if we could take a step back, you were there from the beginning. Whose original idea was the Team Challenge series, the idea of this point system, of the teams? Whose idea was it? Okay, so we're we're talking about almost 30 years ago. So I'm going to preface everything that I say about the Team Challenge series with that. And as I pause for a moment and think, wow. Almost 30 years ago. Um, But it was Greg Gagne's um, concept is the way that I remember it. To try to do something different in professional wrestling. uh, To try to add a, shall we call it a sport element or or a team element into the business. And, uh, well, hence came forth the Team Challenge Series. The pilot that you saw is, well, that everybody is seeing on the WWE Network is not what aired, I think for many different reasons, but boy, was that an interesting shoot. (laughs) You keep saying that. I got to get to this shoot. So first of all, it looks nothing like anything else the AWA ever did. It looks like nothing else really anyone else ever did in wrestling. I mean, it looks somewhat similar to world class, except for the lack of fans and the smoke and whatever else is going on there. But in terms of the production, whose concept was it? The look, the sound, the feel of the show? That was, and and for the life of me, I can't remember his last name, but it was an outside producer that was brought in. And his name, his first name was Nick. Somebody who had done some television, uh, had done some music videos, and for the life of me, again, I do not recall. I, I, I think he was recommended to Vern and Greg by somebody. So Nick came in and he tried, uh, well, and quite frankly, succeeded at presenting professional wrestling in a way that was never done before. And I probably have to say has not been done since for <laughs> Uh, for a variety of reasons. Was Nick a wrestling fan at all, to the best of your knowledge? Uh, not, not really. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't classify him as a mark. He was a, uh, a, a TV producer who took it as a challenge. Uh, he was familiar with the industry, but n- you know, not, not well-versed in it. And that's, well, (laughs) and again, that's how you got the pilot. And then what came from the pilot, that was a more traditional approach to doing wrestling in in arena and (laughs) and in the pink studio. 
Do you remember how long approximately it was from the birth of the concept to the actual taping? Oh, I believe it was probably about, I I would say about three to four months. And once the concept was thrown out there, a lot of the different elements needed to be figured out, created, um, and developed. And some may say that three to four months should have been three to four years. And maybe within that time, somebody would have stepped up and said, yeah, no, this isn't probably a, a too good of an idea. But at the time, I will have to admit, at the time, I was intrigued by it for, as I look back, probably for no other reason than the AWA was on a sinking, what was a sinking ship and trying to grasp at anything to try to keep the ship upright. But, uh, yeah, that didn't quite happen a couple of years after the Team Challenge series. Well, that's certainly what this pilot was, a attempt to grasp anything, just grab anything they could that was out there. It begins with cheerleaders in the ring doing an AWA song and dance, and then <laughs> immediately cuts to Vern Gagne on his dock with his dog, talking about how he's retired, but this is the new concept in wrestling. So let's talk about those two scenes because they're so radically different. How involved were you in either of those shoots? The girls in the ring, uh, the the cheerleaders, as you called them, uh, were actually oil wrestlers at a gentleman's club in downtown Minneapolis. The club, I believe, was called Solid Gold. And I, we did a one day shoot there, uh, started at about 7 a.m. And I think I got home at 1 a.m. the following day. Uh, but we wrapped up the shoot at about 6 p.m. because they needed, um, well, they, they needed the ring. They needed the stage for, uh, for the oil wrestling. <laughs> and, 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 and yeah. Um, and, and, uh, had a you know had an interesting story about that one, and I'm going to just sort of give you a little side note story here. But so you know, working with these girls all day, and they they were great. They knew nothing about wrestling other than getting lathered in oil and and having men pay to wrestle them in oil. So I'm there all day, uh, myself, Nick, and I'm trying to remember who the third, I believe it might've been Gary Darusha, the uh, uh, AWA Raphael Darusha's son. Anyway, we're there for the entire day. And after an 11 hour day with no break, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to stay and have a cocktail. Well, one turned into 1 a.m. And, but during that course of time, um, and still to the, to this day, I'm trying to figure out how and why this happened. But the oil wrestlers, the girls go up there, they go up there to be two at a time, to be two guys and two girls in the ring. And they'd get up and they'd essentially auction off who would go in and oil wrestle with the girls. Well, the, 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 this one gal who, I'll just put it this way, she was my favorite to work with for the day had a patriotic <laughs> red, white, and blue uh, b- um, bikini on. Well, you're a patriotic guy. She she uh, was up and getting auctioned off, and I'm just sitting there having a few drinks, and I'm like in the 
back of uh, by the bar and and the ring and everything is on the other side. Well, the the auctioning off is going on in this guy three or four chair seats down from me, bar stools down from me, wins the bidding, and I remember the amount was one hundred and ninety dollars. So a lot by today's standard. Now let's go back to nineteen eighty nine. Uh, or actually, yeah, it would have been 89. Um, yeah. It was even a lot more money. Okay, so it's like, well, okay, this guy really wants to get in there. Uh, about a minute <laughs> passes by, he comes and walks over to me, taps me on the shoulder, and he goes, I don't want to get into the ring, would you? Um, well, let's see, after a handful of cocktails in me and, um, you know, the, the, um, the oil wrestler who and this was before I started dating my wife. So if she does listen to this podcast, she will know that. Uh, so I was single at the time. And uh, so I went into the ring. I jumped at the chance. And not only did I oil wrestle for three two-minute rounds, but the other guy got kicked out because he was getting a little handsy. He got warned once, got warned twice, got kicked out. So all of a sudden I'm in uh, a handicap match. <laughs> Two girls lathered in oil wrestling against me. And I was very happy to get stuck with the one, two, three. I sold in that match like you wouldn't believe Brian. <laughs> so anyway, just a little side note of that day. I'd like to believe that you shot in the order that it aired and that you woke up the next day, hung over, covered in oil, and went to Vern's house to shoot him <laughs> on the dock. It, that would make for a better story, but no, <laughs> alas, we, we shot the Vern stuff a couple of days uh, prior to that. What's the story with that? Because it does seem a bit out of place on here. You know, not to criticize the actual piece, you know, with Vern saying that nice thing, but you go from that to Ralph and Greg in their tracksuits. And, you know, the, the, the Beverly Hills knockouts and everything else that transpires on this program. So whose idea was it to have Vern do a little bit of a blessing at the beginning? It was all Nick, um, the, the, the new producer. That was every idea, every, everything involved in that pilot, which never saw broadcast, by the way, until today or until this month on the WWE Network. Everything was Nick, you know, and, and again, you know, I, to his credit, if you will, he tried something different. Didn't work, but he tried something different, wanted to do something completely out of the norm for professional wrestling in the hopes of throwing it against the wall and, and uh, seeing if it would stick. Not only did it not stick, but it bounced back and hit us right <laughs> smack dab in the forehead. Beyond that, though, to take a step away from this for a second, the AWA is producing weekly television, has been for years. AWA is a regular production team. You're being a big part of it. Are there any hurt feelings? Is anyone bothered by the fact that this outside producer is brought in for this project? Um, there was skepticism, um, you know, but, but as I alluded to earlier, what everybody knew, and that includes... Greg, Vern, I mean, everybody in the office, everybody in production, and, and even the talent, everybody knew that the AWA was in trouble. 
um, which really sort of goes back to the um, the disaster known as Super Clash 3, at least the financial disaster known as Super Clash 3 out of Chicago. But when they brought Nick in and he didn't know wrestling, I'll admit that, you know, the, in my mind, I'm thinking, what the hell is this? You know, what, what is this? You know, the, this guy doesn't know shit about the business. Why are, why are we even bringing him in? Uh, but then we had production meetings, and the concept was delivered, and it became a, well, <laughs> desperate times call for desperate measures. And so we just went along with it. You know, we did what the boss wanted to do. And I don't know that Vern truly wanted to do it, but he needed to try something. He felt that he needed to try something completely different because he was not able to compete with the WWE and uh, the WCCW back in the day. Desperate times call for desperate measures, as you said, or desperate times call for Ralph Stranges. Who found (laughs) Ralph Stranges? Whose decision was it to do as many close-ups, seemingly, as there were on Ralph Stranges' face (laughs) throughout the entire thing? Tell me about Ralph Stranges. Well, for, first of all, it's a name from the past. I I hadn't uh, I'd completely forgotten about Ralph uh, after all these years. He was with us for a short while. If memory serves me right, he was the son of an attorney. Now, Bob Ryan was the AWA attorney. Bob was on, uh, uh, I think he was involved in the Team Challenge series as far as awarding some stuff and made a couple of uh, guest shots. Uh, during the AWA time. And Ralph was uh, uh, an, an aspiring broadcaster, and the price was right. Again, you know, the uh, Desperate Times thing. And so they gave it a shot. Nick uh, thought that uh, uh, Ralph could work well with Greg and brought him in. And there you have Ralph. Well, Ralph was great to work with. I, I will admit, I didn't think that he was cut out for the wrestling uh, industry being uh, on camera. Uh, I think he did well being a, uh, a hockey announcer um, rather than a, an on-camera wrestling personality. But Ralph was a good guy. You know, I, I can't disparage him in any way, shape, or form other than maybe some of the close-ups were a little bit too close-up and uh, <laughs> a little bit too frequent. Plus, he delivered everything like he was trying to sell me a timeshare. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, welcome to the AWA. By the way, he calls it the brand new AWA. Obviously, you kept, I say you, I'm not blaming you. The AWA kept the Team Challenge series in a different form for the remainder of its existence, or at least near the end, uh, they still had it. But yeah, they got rid of the idea of the brand new AWA. Was this something from Nick? Were Greg and Vern trying to rebrand? What was the brand new AWA? Was it going to be anything? Well, the brand new AWA was really it was the Team Challenge series, whether it was in its pilot form or presented as the team challenge series a new approach to professional wrestling and and that was based on the team and gathering points and having these absurd um (laughs) (laughs) absurd matches and rules and stipulations in the matches in order for teams to be awarded the the points 
And so that was the whole idea behind the brand new AWA. Plus, you know, I mean, let, let, let's face it, even though the AWA had such a rich history, they were, they slash we were trying to, again, really just throw something against the wall and hope that it would stick. And some semblance of the former glory could be brought back. But it, 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 it really, it turned out like trying to paint a black wall white. Um, it needed more and more and more coats and nothing worked. And you could still see that faintness of darkness behind it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the Team Challenge Series was pretty much the end of the run for the AWA. Because after that, we went into uh, uh, reruns <laughs> using... Uh, old matches from the St. Paul Civic Center, Minneapolis Auditorium, ESPN, and, and, and you name it. But that was um, that. That was the whole idea behind the new or the brand new AWA, just to try to do a rebranding. I mentioned that Ralph and Greg wore very colorful track suits. Almost looks like they were junior mobster wannabes out there. But <laughs> they're broadcasting from where they claim they're going to be doing the announcing for the entire show. They call it Satellite Base. Where was Satellite Base? <laughs> Same place we did interviews and talking heads. It was <laughs> in the studio of the AWA. 10,001 Wyzetta Boulevard. I still remember the address. We go from there to our first match. The first match is Tommy Jammer versus Tom Burton. The intros, I don't even know how to talk about this. The cutscenes to go to the ring are wrestlers walking out in front of a green screen, obviously. <laughs> And on both sides of them, on the top and bottom, it's like Tron. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. There's just boxes, and it looks computerized. And on the sides, there are close-ups, bizarre close-ups, of fans seemingly in a bar. Clearly not there. This is repeated throughout the program. If you're a good guy, your color is green. If you're a bad guy, your color is red. But, Joe, talk a little bit about this. Talk everything you know about this when you first heard the concept, when you first saw it, but talk a little bit about these cut scenes, these walks to the ring that the wrestlers had to do. <laughs> really? You're going to make me relive this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so let's start with the, I mean, the, the talent walkouts were nothing, you know, we, we told them what the end product was going to be and they walked out and, you know, looked from side to side, maybe waved and, and uh, just did a short little walkout on a green screen. The fans that you saw on the green screen, that to me was uh, was a cluster F and you know the rest of the, uh, the, the letters. Yeah. We went to a, it was like a TGI Fridays or an Applebee's, just you know some type of bar restaurant near the AWA studios in Minneapolis. And I'm thinking, okay, they're going to have something set up. They're going to have people there that are going to, that we're going to be able to direct. And, and, you know, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's what we need you to do. We go there and Nick, again, he was the producer of it. Nick, I meet him there and he goes, okay, go and ask people to just start cheering and, and, and so forth and tell them what this is for. And I look at him and I go, what? You, we, we, we don't have, this isn't like, like set up, you know, we, we don't have people or a cast or, or somebody that 
knows what we're doing? Well, no, I just figured we had a bunch of people here and we can just ask them to do it. And it's like, okay, oh joy, <laughs> this is going to be fun. And so we, you know, when we, we went around to the tables and bought drinks for, uh, for them to be on camera. And lo and behold, uh, we got what you saw. They, you know, they, they, they did it minimally for the drinks and we looked it, we reused it. Um, more people said no than said yes, <laughs> even though we offered them drinks. They did not want to be on camera. They did not want to be a part of this. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't blame you, dude, because I don't want to do this either. <laughs> but I'm getting paid, and I'm doing what the boss is telling me to do. So that's how we got the <laughs> crowd B-roll footage for the Team Challenge Series walkouts. Well, it certainly explains how you got most of them by bribing them with drinks. It doesn't explain how you got the two children that sit next to each other during one of the matches and give the most mundane reactions to everything. Like literally like someone saying, give thumbs up or, you know, give thumbs down. Who were the kids? Yep. <laughs> I, I, you know, again, they were, they were just, we would go to a table. It's like, Hey, there's a full table. You know, maybe we have eight or 10 people. And you know, they were just families who were there and, you know, young kids, old kids, you know, whatever. Um, grandparents, uh, you name it. Uh, we just, anybody that would be willing to be shot on camera for this, we would shoot. And I do remember you, you brought up the kids. I do remember Nick in the background behind me, I should say, um, trying to direct the kids. And it's like, are you, are you kidding me? The, the, these kids barely know the alphabet or how to count to 10, let alone know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> but just went through it. And, and again, lo and behold, you see what you see on that pilot. I'm a very interesting pilot. You know, the other thing too, is even if you wanted to try to make that concept work, it's hard when you have the kids clearly in a bar or restaurant, and then you go back to the smoke filled, empty room. And it's like the two kids are by themselves. They're not in a crowd, like isolate. It's just them sitting. There's no one around them. It looks like they're just by themselves in their own area of the room. Yeah, the, the, the whole idea initially was to chroma key a crowd in the studio. It, it's just not going to work. I mean, the perspective-wise, 1989 technology, it just it wasn't going to work. And so that's why you got the empty studio and all of these people. And, and this is a part that still confuses me to this day. So to, to get back to the walkouts with the, yeah. the 3d Tron talent walkout with the crowd <laughs> on each side, yeah. the whole idea was uh, to get people in the bar was that they were watching this at a sports bar that, so they would be, they're, they're cheering for, they're intrigued. They're following along in a sports bar. Okay, so I sort of get that concept, but then why have them be a part of a talent walkout and have you show, show this horrible green screen on both sides? I never understood that. And, and by the way, as a side note, I did not edit that pilot. That pilot was done out of house. I do not want any blame. Uh, I don't know that any credit can be provided other than maybe for a good laugh or 12. But I, I, I just was a videographer 
uh, and an oil wrestler for a short time, uh, <laughs> well, for the Team Challenge Series pilot. Did any of the people in the restaurant, when you went up to them, did anyone say, oh, I love the AWA? Oh, of course they did. They were they were liquored up, so they'd say anything to get a free drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have these matches. We talked about this studio. Originally, like you said, it was going to be green screen. You were going to have the crowd in there, too. This this bullshit crowd from TGI Fridays. But where did you guys shoot? Where was the actual building that you shot in? It was done at a local television studio. Uh, it's CARE 11 now. Back in the day, it was uh, WTCN 11, uh, an NBC affiliate. We rented out the, the space for... God, it was probably a, a couple of days' time. And uh, actually, this would have been more than that because um, I'm trying to remember if we went. Actually, we hired them, and they painted it and did all of the lighting and set up the ring. Well, we set up the ring, but um, got everything set up, and we were in there for a couple of days to uh, shoot what we needed to. What station was it again that you shot at? At the time, it was WTCN11. It's now CARE11, K-A-R-E-11, an uh, NBC affiliate here in the Twin Cities. Let's get back to this amazing show. <laughs> we have these matches. We keep going back and forth to Greg and Ralph. But then we also start getting some promos. Now, these are a bit awkward, too, just because I know wrestlers have always done green screen interviews. Not always, but you know, at least from the mid-80s or late-80s on. They did green screen interviews, but these ones were spectacular. The first one is just in front of like a blank screen, Sergeant Slaughter and Baron Von Raschke. In terms of these guys, here you have two experienced pros. Does anyone explain to them what the concept is, or is it just another day to them? Just another day to them, and in the back of their minds, they're wondering, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? But much like I you know, alluded to you about uh, you know, just doing what the boss says, that's what they were doing. Um, you know, th this was the concept. Um, they needed to try to uh, do what they could in order to to sell it. And, uh, you know, the Baron and, and, uh, and Sarge were, uh, are, were and are consummate pros, and they, you know, they, they did what they needed to do in order to, to get the promo done within the time frame that we needed. But I don't think there was a single wrestler, in all honesty, outside of maybe Jake the Milkman Milliman, who really thought that this was a decent idea. <laughs> well, of course he would be the one. Uh, you get a Destruction Crew match, which is always great, because one of the great underrated tag teams. I know people know the Beverly Brothers, but they were so much better. This is one of the acts the AWA actually got right, the Destruction Crew. And Agreed. It's them with Johnny Valiant, who's not in their promo where they're, I guess, feigning that they're knocking down the building on the green screen behind them. He's not there, <laughs> but he is there with them to walk out. They have a match against Jerry Lynn, a very young Jerry Lynn, and Ricky Rice. And then there's a promo, Eric Bischoff, before he started dyeing his hair, at ringside, interviewing the Destruction crew and Johnny Valiant. And the mic, the audio, the sound is off. Was that intentional or was that something else? Uh, that was poor post-production. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and by the way, the reason that uh, Valiant wasn't with them in front of the that awful imploded or tore down building in the background is that interview, uh, when you saw Mike and Wayne on there, 
that was shot in the AWA studios and Valiant was flown in for live events. And so I don't know exactly what happened on this one. You know, John, uh, he would come in every now and then and do promos with them. But then that's another payday outside of doing a live event. And Vern didn't want to pay it. So uh, if it was part of uh, a TV taping, uh, then it's all included in the price. But to have him come into the studio, he would have to get paid to do another day of promos. So that's why he didn't see him before the match, but you saw him after the match. After um, another promo with Sergeant Slaughter and Colonel De Beers, again, green screen. This one's really awkward because they actually turn to the side and point to each other. And then the other person, you know, does the same thing, like they're actually in the same room at the same time. But then we go to uh, live from Beverly Hills and the Beverly Hills knockouts. What do you remember about this? About the knockouts? Well, again, let me me refresh your memory, Joe. Mustang Sally. Slaughterhouse Sean. (laughs) The Blonde Bomber. What, what do you remember about shooting the Beverly Hills knockouts? Well, yeah, as we started, uh, as I shared earlier, they were, uh, they, they were oil wrestlers, and they were hired for the day. They came in early and performed per the script, as were asked. Um, names were, were given to them, as is uh, done in the business. And, you know, an argument can be made that 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 was probably the most fun and the most entertainment that I had uh, in doing the Team Challenge series. From what I understand, Sean Waltman and Jerry Lynn had actually been training some of those girls to do work boxing matches. I believe Sean Waltman actually tweeted that out. So uh, an interesting little fact there. But the camera work, the camera shots during that were very, very different. And I'm curious what your perspective of those were, because obviously you have been involved for a few years at this point in shooting wrestling. When all of a sudden you see it and the cameras from the perspective of being the person being punched or being on the ground, what do you think when you see that happening? I thought it was an utter disaster for the business. Um, it, it It went from being presented as a live event sport to uh, to to a, uh, a movie like uh, is, is what it felt like. It's like okay, cut. Okay, get into the ring. Uh, let's get the perspective, uh, you know, of, of this guy getting punched or or getting ready to to do a collar elbow uh, lock up. And that's why we're in there for a couple of days, uh, as you can imagine. A it, it took a lot more time. So suddenly, a seven to eight minute match took a half an hour to just shoot, even though the end match would end up being probably five minutes. It's just, uh, you know, again, throwing something against the wall, hoping that it would be different, something that had never been done and something that was being attempted by somebody who was not in the wrestling business. So you take all of that combined and voila, you have the Team Challenge Series brand new AWA pilot. You know, one of the things we don't get to see, I'm guessing it was edited out for uh, music publishing reasons, but whatever the rock and roll on the show was, we didn't get to see. Do you remember what that would have been? Uh, we tried. I, I, I remember the open of the show. Nick wanted a mixture of classical gas 
and Steve Miller band, uh, Fly Like an Eagle. And the, the, the mashup didn't quite work. Uh, I, I, there were other copyrighted pieces of music that were used in the original, original pilot. But then when it was presented uh, to us at the office, it's like, this can't go out. We don't own the rights to this uh, music, even though admittedly, you know, some copyrighted music was used during the AWA shows prior to it. But this was rather uh, blatant and quite frequent. So it's like, no, we, this, this, this not going to work. We just can't do it. Did G.I. Joe give you guys the rights to use G.I. Joe? I've never really asked that before, but you see Sergeant Slaughter, and obviously he's wearing the G.I. Joe patch. They call him Mr. G.I. Joe. He's on the G.I. Joe cartoons, and he has a G.I. Joe action figure at this time. But do the wrestling companies actually have the rights to use that? Did the AWA have rights to use G.I. Joe? Back in the day, yes, Um, because Slaughter had the rights with G.I. Joe, and it was used, it was free publicity for them. They didn't have to pay for anything, but Slaughter could go on camera. You could promote uh, G.I. Joe, and you know they took it as a, hey, great, more mentions, and it's not going to cost us anything. How, how can we lose? Well, yeah. little did they know they're going to be involved in the Team Challenge Series. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's um, also on the show, you get a Paul Diamond versus Colonel DeBeers match, and boy, is Paul Diamond shredded here. And then you get Sergeant Slaughter, the aforementioned Sergeant Slaughter, versus terminator and then greg and ralph wrap it up and that's it so now let's talk about the life of this after production wrapped what was post-production like on this well yeah and again the nick took the post-production out of house he went to there was a studio downtown minneapolis that was used i believe it was called metropolitan hotter i i don't believe they're in business any longer but that's where all of the post-production was done. That's where all the graphics were done. Uh, it was part of the entire package that was sold to Vern by Nick that, yep, it needs to be done out of house. Because as much as we were able to do with the AWA in, the stu- in Vern's studios, it really was a simple, straight-cut, um, A-B-roll edit production. Uh, didn't have any graphics. In fact, uh, I mean, the graphics at the time were substandard and it was only the only time we used the graphics were for the program slates for the shows. So it went out of house and Nick did the post-production. So I had no involvement um, in that. But what I can share with you is my subdued reaction to seeing the pilot the first time in the studio. I say subdued because I did not want to comment about it either way. It wasn't my money. It wasn't my uh, wasn't my work. I wanted to see what Vern and Greg and everybody else, uh, the powers that be, shall we say, to see what their reaction was. Let's put it this way: not a lot of talking really happened. Although I do faintly remember Vern slapping his forehead and going. Oh, geez. <laughs> when? When did he do that? Uh, was what? it the knockouts? <laughs> no, <laughs> he actually did that a few times during the show, and then I think he had his hardest slap at the end of it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think Greg had uh, similar sentiments. 
And it, very quickly, everybody knew that this new AWA or new approach to professional wrestling uh, was not going to happen. But they were still convinced on the Team Challenge series. I like that Greg keeps calling slow motion solo motion. <laughs> and that slow motion, boy, did that expose the business. Every single thing they showed showed you exactly how to perform a wrestling move. It was almost too perfect, the slow motion. Yeah, and I, I think that the first slow-mo that happened was Vern's first OGs. And well, they show you how to maybe set up not, a body slam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe not verbatim, you know, from, from what you said, but he said we can we can't do this. It just it shows it, it, it shows everything in the business. We can't we can't air this. We can't do this. And it's like, well, yeah, we, we agree with you, Vern. <laughs> you know, we, we can go beyond just the slow-mo, but for many reasons, this should never be aired. And, you know, fortunately, 30 years later, uh, it resulted in this conversation and chuckles across the Internet. One of the things that people are unclear about, and uh, I know you probably wouldn't remember exactly, but maybe you could approximate, is when this was filmed. The WWE Network has a date on it of October 23rd, 1989. It clearly is not then. It's not that late. Do you remember approximately when this would have been? Was it in the spring of 89? Was it in the winter? The concept began in the spring. We shot in the summer and went into post. I want to say it was about the middle of August. And it took, I mean, it took a good month in post-production to get what you see on the WWE network. So aside from the drastic concept, uh, doing a weekly television show 52 weeks a year, there's just no way that production-wise is going to be able to do it. Even if, even if the concept was going to work, there were challenges in production um, that were never, ever, ever had been seen in professional wrestling before. We would have to be shooting three months prior to the air date in order to provide enough time to guarantee that we had shows to put out for distribution. Well, the AWA did try to do something with this. I know that um, David Bixenspan recently reported in Deadspin that Steve Beverly, who used to publish Matt Watch, wrote in the summer of 89 that the AWA and syndicator Bob Sires were offering a radical new proposal to stations. And they were approaching different television stations with this show. I don't know if it was the pilot at this point, but at least the concept. What do you remember about that, if you know anything about that? The attempts to syndicate it. The whole deal with Bob Sires was actually uh, the brainchild of Mike Shields, who was uh, my boss at the AWA. And it goes back even before Super Clash 3. And the whole concept was to get all of the smaller wrestling leagues pulled together to do the distribution, but then to present this pool of wrestling shows to advertisers that Bob Sires would then secure and bring in advertising revenue into the AWA or into all of the different leagues is a concept that actually worked for a while. The team challenge series really wasn't 
a huge selling point of it. Uh, it was just uh, another episode or a series of episodes in this whole syndication package. But the deal, um, you know, while it did have financial success, promoters in wrestling never have really played together nicely. The fact that Super Clash 3 even happened was nothing short of a miracle in the business, but it was desperation all the way around. Um, but fast forward a little bit, and Vern just finally said, I can't, I don't want to be associated with these other wrestling organizations. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out. I'm pulling out. And thereby, Vern threw away a very large chunk of revenue um, that was really still keeping the AWA afloat. In terms of this specific article that Steve Beverly wrote, do you know anything about this tape? This pilot being given to Bob Sires specifically to try to syndicate a new format of wrestling? That I'm unclear about. That would be a Mike Shields question. Um, my best guesstimate was that he, uh, because the money and the time and the effort were spent, that the pilot was given to Bob Sires and then shopped around in the hopes that somebody would see enough in it. To say, yeah, here's a bunch of money. Go and shoot a bunch more uh, uh, crowd shots of people at Applebee's and get them incorporated into the show. <laughs> well, when you put it like that, uh, you know, one of the other <laughs> things that the uh, the Deadspin article pointed out was this was at a period of time where you had American Gladiators, you had roller games. It was a different kind of early morning syndicate, or at least Heroes Early Morning, but it was a different kind of syndicated show out there that, in some respects. Maybe not the uh, Tron-like graphics, but in some respects, this program kind of would fit into that genre. And that was the whole idea, you know, to try something new, to get it more into a team-oriented concept um, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, like whether it's, a, you know, football where, you know, you've got um, different divisions and conferences and and. and Baseball, I mean, every major sport you throw in the American Gladiators whole team concept, that was the whole idea. That was what was hot at the time. And the team challenge series, uh, pilots notwithstanding, I mean, even including the subsequent year or approximately of, of shooting stuff for the team challenge series, that was the concept to, to try to combine traditional wrestling into what was hot and on the air at the time. You know, Polish Joe, the XFL, I think to this day, is still the biggest financial loser, I guess would be the best way to put it, in network television history. NBC lost so much money on that that no other network has ever lost that amount of money on any single project ever. But you always hear people bring up some good ideas came out of the XFL, whether it's some camera work or whatever it may be. So here we are looking at the Team Challenge series, this pilot, this different version of it than what would eventually go out there on the AWA television network. We've talked about all the things that were wrong with it. What good came out of this Polish show? What did you see while working on this that you were able to apply in a positive manner to future AWA broadcasts? The end of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean that really in, in, in a lot of seriousness. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the concept, I guess, had... Uh, touch of viability in that 
it was something again that was different and let's let's just give it a shot because what was being done wasn't working i really looking back at the whole team challenge series um escapade i really can't pinpoint one particular thing that came out of it that still exists to this day they've never seen another turkey on a pole match um (laughs) thankfully although the gobbledygooker was an absolute disaster for the wwe years prior to this so i think it was a few years before this i think it was after it but he wasn't on a pole it'd be very true it was just a guy dressed in a turkey suit and a big egg for weeks on air. Um, yeah, that to me is still, wow, that that happened. But I really nothing from the Team Challenge series that was done uh, creatively uh, or differently. Uh, I don't think anything stuck in the business. It certainly didn't provide me with any new insight on how to do professional wrestling. Uh, maybe because I, you know, I started watching it when I was five years old and still enjoyed the uh, traditional method of doing uh, a wrestling program. And by this point, uh, uh, over four plus years now, by the time the Team Challenge Series went on the air, um, this is the way that wrestling is done. We can modernize it a little bit, uh, you know, try to, um, the, the, the one piece of music that if if you can remember back, I used, even though not supposed to, but I used uh, the beginning of Endance Front as bumper music out. And it just provided a nice hot little rock and wrestling for, uh, for the AWA. And that was really about it. Um, but all of that had been done. I mean, Vince had started to do it with the very first WrestleMania doing the rock and wrestling. You know, you, you don't see any in-camera perspectives in the WWE nowadays, thankfully. Uh, although you do see some corner cams, which uh, you know, I think is interesting. But to answer your question, honestly, the best thing that came out of that was the end of it. Not the end of the AWA, the end of the Team Challenge series. What do you find more cringeworthy? This, this demo, this pilot taping, or the Pink Studio taping? <laughs> wow. That, if that was a Team Challenge series match, that might be a time limit draw. <laughs> um, How many points is that? <laughs> <laughs> Negative six. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would... I would have to say the pilot as a whole, even though the pink studio was uh, atrocious, at least it was traditional style wrestling, even though the, the match rules were different based on the team challenge series, but it, it had more of a traditional wrestling sense within the four corners and ring ropes. The pilot was, I mean, just, completely different and out there. Um, I mean, the matches were still similar, but from the walkouts to the interesting camera angles, um, the attempt to put the same looped crowd on, on green screen around the studio at one point, which, you know, again, for the record, nobody saw because that was not going to work. 
Wait, wait, did um, they? Did you so you, there was actually a demo tape, or there, at least there was at one point of shooting that room with green screen crowd all around it. Um, yeah, I, I actually recorded it at our studio because we did have green screen capability, of course. And it's like, okay, before the money is spent at, at the Southside Production House, let's see what we can possibly get it to look like here uh, in our studio. And I, I put two and two together, and it came up zero. <laughs> there you go. The story of the Team Challenge series. Two plus two equals zero. That's a, that's a good example <laughs> yeah. there. Um this is great. And once again, thank you so much for the time. As always, Polish Joe, you're popular with the listeners. You're popular with me here on the show. But before we let you go, we've talked about it before. You and Todd Okerlund have classic wrestling. Uh, I'd love it if you could talk for a few moments to the listeners about what you guys are up to. Well, we've got classicwrestling.com, of course. And if you go to classicwrestling.com, we now have made available a uh, 11 of our classic wrestling pay-per-views that are available to rent or buy on our Vimeo pay-per-view channel. Um, you can get them. I mean, you can rent a show for as little as 99 cents, or you can buy and download the show so you can watch it anywhere for as low as 499 a show so very reasonable uh when they first aired on pay-per-view they were about 10 bucks so we you know cut that price in half uh we've got a really good reception a lot of fans uh, have gotten it although um, it's interesting on that note that beach brawl the uwf beach brawl herb abrams beach brawl is the number one buy come on, on I'm not kidding. It Beach Brawl has more buys than any other of the pay-per-views, and I, I'm dumbfounded. You have good stuff. You have Memphis. You have Southwest. Beach Brawl from 1991. Exactly. Matt Mayhem from Memphis. We've got uh, a Lone Star Shootout from Southwest. Actually, those are two of my personal favorite pay-per-views uh, that we had done with probably Matt Mayhem. Uh, being number one, um, but for whatever reason, it's Beach Brawl. Maybe you could chalk it up to the uh, driving past a car accident. You just can't help but look and 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 see the disaster. Maybe that's why they went for uh, the Beach Brawl. Now, as I say that, you know, the Beach Brawl itself. It's not that it's a bad pay per view in terms of, especially now. Uh, you know, some 25 years later, it's got some big names on it and so forth. But I think we had more people in the Applebee's shooting for the green screen than there were people in the audience yeah. for the UWF beach brawl shoot. Hey, Polish Joe, I'm going to give you a free idea right now that I want you guys to run with. You need to go through the entire archive, everything you guys have from Herb Abrams, UWF and pull the best Herb Abrams moments and put together a best of Herbo Turbo Abrams. And I guarantee people will buy that because people want to see what they've been hearing about. The guy covered in baby oil, running around high on cocaine, smashing up things with a baseball bat with women's purses, chasing hookers. People want to know more about this man. You know, what's funny about that description is you could take out Herb Abrams name and probably include half of the talent that I worked with back <laughs> in the eighties. And they could have applied into that. They could have fallen into that same description. But no, I love the idea. Uh, you know, 
there's enough content there. We have the uh, the rights to the entire UWF library, so that might be an idea. Can you imagine that then becoming the number one bestseller on Vimeo? I can certainly imagine it, and we'll see what happens there. But once again, how can the listeners check out Classic Wrestling? ClassicWrestling.com, and that will lead you right to the uh, Vimeo pay-per-view channel. Uh, there's a link right there on the main page, and we're also on Facebook as well. Uh, that's how I got this friendship started. And uh, so, yeah, ClassicWrestling.com. Check it out. Take a look at some uh, old wrestling going back even to the 1960s. One final question for you this week. Obviously, Orgasmic Larry Nelson was not a part of the Team Challenge series. He had already fled by that point. And we <laughs> Good get, way to put it. And we get young Eric Bischoff. A, 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 well, I shouldn't say young, but we get early Eric Bischoff in the wrestling business. Is it fair to assume that if Larry Nelson hadn't left in the middle of the night, that he would have been on this pilot? Without a doubt. In fact, I think Larry might have gotten more involved than he had did in, uh, done in prior AWA shows, especially doing that shoot at the Gentleman's Club. Boom! There it is! Polish Joe Chupik returning to the Super Podcast. Once again, a great friend of the show. It's always great to have him on the air, and I appreciate the time he spends with us, especially here today on the third anniversary Spectacular. Jim, I want to thank you once again for being here. Of course, we talk all the time, but this is a big special show for the Super Podcast, the anniversary show, and we love having you here each year for it. Any final words for the listeners this week? Well, I love being had, and every time I deal with you, I am in some form or another, but I appreciate, and we do talk entirely too much now that you've just brought it up and mentioned it. We talk constantly, and I'm getting a little bit tired of it, so I'll thank you to only address me on Mondays and Thursdays for the drive through or the experience. But otherwise, I've enjoyed this experience. I've enjoyed it so much that I can't wait to tell people about it now that it's over with. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. But as we get ready to wrap things up, a few thanks here at the end of year three, at the end of this anniversary show. As always, I want to thank David Bixenspan, who started this show with me. He's the co-creator of the Super Podcast, and he's made many contributions to this show, and as well as being a great friend of mine throughout the years. So thanks to Bix. Also want to thank Travis Heckle for all the amazing artwork he does each and every week, and a lot of other things he does. He's a big help to me and a great friend of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Scott Cornish, obviously a major part of the show and a great friend of mine. Howard Baum has really taken off on the show in the past year and run with his top 10 characters, as well as his many, many great segments. I look forward to much more Howard Baum on the show in the future. The Golden Boy Jerry Gray became a big part of the show in the past year, and we look forward to more of the Golden Boy in the future. Once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFund Golden Boy if you want to help Jerry out during his battle right now. With stage four cancer, he could use all the help he gets. Please consider doing that if you've enjoyed him on the show in the past year. Also got to thank various people who have helped out in one way or another. Vandal Drummond himself, Kurt Brown. Of course, Dan Farron has made several memorable appearances on this show in the past year, and I think you'll hear more from him in year four. I want to thank Mike Mills from Booking the Territory. I want to thank Jace Nakarado, the director of show research, who has gone above and beyond, not only with helping with show research here for things on the air, but developing the show wiki at tinyurl.com slash superpodwiki. He has killed it while building out that page. Check out his amazing work by going there. 
I want to thank Lou Kippelman, who recently has joined us here on the show and become a big part of the show and is a good guy, and I think you'll be hearing a lot more from him in the future. Rick Lonnan, who has helped me with various things, including 3D artwork, and I think you'll see more stuff from Rick in the future. I look forward to working further with him. I want to thank Dolph Ramsor and all the people at Ramsor Records, including the Avid Brothers and all the other artists who have supported this show throughout the year and throughout the years, quite frankly. Dolph is a great friend of mine beyond being a sponsor, and I'm very appreciative of how supportive he's always been of the 605 Super Podcast. I want to thank my friend Stephen P. New. I'd like to thank Jeff Siegel for his ongoing counsel. Cousin Alex Last, who's always there to help out in the pinch. The Paper Bag Assassin, my lovely Suzanne, who folds all your shirts when you buy them from tinyurl.com slash store. When you get those shirts and they look really nice, I'm not the one folding them. That's her, and I love her dearly, as well as our children. And of course, Swami Last, maybe the greatest last of them all. I want to also thank everyone else who works with me on all the other Arcadian Vanguard shows. The 605 Super Podcast is the flagship of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and I am blessed to work with such great people like Jeff Baldron, Barry Rose, Ron Fuller, Scott Bowden, John McAdam, Sean Goodwin, Mike Mills, and many more people I think you'll be hearing in the coming year on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I want to thank Frank the Collector, who has mailed in various things throughout the year to, I'll give the address, I guess, right now, 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. He just recently sent me for the holidays an original, in its original packaging, Lord James Bleer's monocle. This is something I've actually always wanted, and I can't believe I actually have it. Thank you, Frank the Collector. I want to thank every member of the Mothership Facebook group for participating in whatever's been going on in the past year. Always something fun happening over on the Mothership. I also want to thank everyone who has contributed money to the show, whether you're one of the secret millionaires on Patreon or someone who goes to PayPal every now and then and sends a few bucks. If you guys listen to the show and you dare listen to other shows outside of Arcadian Vanguard, I think you see the difference. We're one of the shows that turns down ads that we think are insulting. I won't just take something to get money onto the shows. My shows have integrity, and I think quality matters, and hopefully you think so too. Thank you to everyone who has contributed over the past year. If you're someone who wants to do that in the future, of course, two ways to do it. One-time basis, paypal.me slash superpodcast, or on an ongoing monthly basis at patreon.com slash superpodcast. There are various people in and around the wrestling business, as well as the entertainment industry, who I talk to regularly, who have been good friends of mine, and... Due to the nature of our conversations and who they are, I can't say their names on the air, but I'm sure they're listening and I want them to know I thank them very much for their friendship and their ongoing support of the Super Podcast. I want to thank several people who you may see if you go to the Facebook page wearing the Super Podcast shirt with various wrestling celebrities and sometimes celebrities from outside the world of wrestling. Thank you. Big time. Thank you. King Shivas. Thank you. Reggie Harp. Thank you. Roy Lusher and Matthew Rochefort, and so many other people who have worn those t-shirts. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you supporting the Super Podcast. You know, one thing I've heard in the past year from a lot of listeners is, we want more of the Super Podcast. We want the show to come out more than it's coming out right now. And you know what? I hear you. There are things in play right now to ensure that's going to happen, and also ensure some very special things happening for Arcadian Vanguard as a whole. Stay tuned. But on that topic, the show hasn't come out as frequently this year. This is the only show that you never can figure out when it's going to come out. It comes out when I'm done with it. This show is legitimately on Brian time. 
When I'm ready, the show comes out. And you know what? The numbers keep going up. I can't explain it. And I have access to information from many other shows. I can tell you it's not something that usually happens. And for that, I am eternally grateful to the listeners of the Super Podcast who are such a dynamic audience and support this show so heavily and spread the word all the time. And I promise you, there are big and fun things in store for every one of you 605ers out there. But as we wrap things up, we wrap up year three of the Super Podcast and we get ready to head into year four. Big things are in store for all of us here at the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For everyone who appeared on the show this week, I'm the great Brian Last. Thank you for listening. Tally-ho! Here are a couple recent calls that came into the 605 Super Podcast hotline that I thought you might find interesting. Hello, Brian Lust. My name is not Big Daddy. I am the greatest wrestler in the British Isles, all the way from the tippy top of Scotland, all the way down to the south of England. I'll take on all comers in town halls and in small arenas, because we don't have big arenas in the UK. However, I am announcing today that I am unhappy with some of the comments left by Not Jimmy Valiant. Not Jimmy Valiant is a guy who is a stain on professional wrestling. Nobody in this country likes Boogie Woogie. It should be Northern Soul Jimmy Valiant. Now there's a gimmick I can get behind. Dennis Carluzzo at the Thanksgiving table. Yo, man, give me some of them fucking mashed potatoes. They're fucking awesome. Give me some of that turkey. I want the turkey tit. Hurry up, man. Hurry up, man. Where the fuck's the iced tea? Is that that powder shoe? Is that the brew? Hold the fucking motor oil. Boogie Man, how are you? I'm doing fine. <coughs> I'm doing fine. Oh, oh fuck. No, you're not. <laughs> Drink some of this flat seltzer here. Say that as Boogeyman. That's fu- it's his flat seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the perennial prelim bum from Columbus, Ohio, speaking about his extensive collection of records and rarities by the brother's gib. <laughs> Okay, I don't know if that one's going to catch on, Boogeyman. I'm sorry. I may have lost the online. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I may have lost the online. (laughs) (laughs) I may have lost. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did not expect this impression. It really got... One hour ago. Oh. 
I may have lost the online action. Oh, I keep... <laughs> Here is some outtake footage from Pandemonium Theater. Originally, when we were recording it, we didn't have everyone there, so Howard Baum played the role of David Crockett, and I played the role of Linda McMahon, and unfortunately, my voice completely went out, so you'll get to hear some hijinks as we were recording. Take a listen to a couple of these clips right now. Vern Gagne, a former Chicago Bear in his 50s who represents the American Wrestling Association. I don't want to see so much as a flyer in a dumpster north of Kansas City from you, Lou. I like, that he, I like that he refers to Lou yeah. and there's no other Lou in the script. He's talking to you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Crockett, 30s, quiet Southern preppy, and David Crockett, 20s, the loudmouth little brother with something to prove. They represent Jim Crockett Promotions. My friends at Georgia Championship have made a less than acceptable offer for an appearance by our current agreed-upon champion. Georgia Championship Wrestling is represented by the current NWA Tag Team Champs. They have the belt in front of them. The Briscoe Brothers, 30s. $5,000 for five nights is less than acceptable. Cut the shit, Jack. You couldn't get Sprat Iron Gadaski for a grand a night. Cut to exterior, Bangor, Maine, afternoon, picturesque, quaint, cold, and way the fuck up there. We push in on the Buick with McMahon driving Linda, Shane, now a toddler, and their infant daughter, Stephanie. They pull into a trailer park and step out to take the place in. This isn't an opportunity. It's exile. You know, our nation's capital was an uninhabitable swamp before some visionaries turned it into the seat of Western democracy. Off Linda's look. Opportunities, what you make of it. You owe me for this! Pointing to her crotch. One hour! Let me do it again. What? Hold on, hold on. What? 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 What am I trying to do? What? what? I got me drink of water. Hold on. <laughs> Warm yourself up. Do some Tiger Jeet sings. Tiger Jeet. I can't even do that. My voice is that loud. <laughs> Tiger Jeet sing. One. What? One. <laughs> I can't do it. It's, it's, wow. This is the first time I couldn't do Sue the Shooter. Two words. Four <laughs> letters. I quit. <laughs> One. One hour! One hour! <laughs> <Give> up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come through, Amy. Oh, you know what? Fuck you. Oh, my God. Don't make me talk proper. I have to talk proper all fucking day. All right, fine. I'm doing the politician voice now, fucker. You owe me for this. One hour. Why are you laughing at me, jerk off? And here we are with a pre-planned Easter egg. We're going to try to get some cameos here on the show here. Uh, Lou, Lou's on the line right now. Say hello, Lou. Hello, Lou. Well, there you go. You could have gone two different ways with that, and you chose lane A. I don't know. Aisle A. I don't know what that was. Or B. I don't know which one that would have been. But uh, hold on. Let me, let me add someone here real quick, because we only have a couple minutes. I got to go record uh, Stick to Wrestling. Let me mm. add this person. Let's see if he's there. Add. 
The other person's typing away. I invited him. I said, are you around? And he keeps typing and typing. I get the three dots on Facebook, but no direct answer. Hello? Jerry? Yes. Hey, man, we're recording. I got Lou Kippelman on the line. Say hello to Lou. Hey, Lou, how you doing, brother? I'm good, Jerry. How are you doing? Um, I'm alive. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I see. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> That's a good baseline. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, listen, guys, before we get going, we only have a couple minutes. Everyone asks, you know, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. This is our pal, Jerry Gray. He hits a home run every time he's on the show. Beyond that, he's a good guy, and he's been a good friend of the show, and everyone enjoys his segments, and he needs our help right now. He's going through so much. If you can help, especially at this time of year, if you can help, every little bit does help. Go to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. And all the money that goes in goes directly to Jerry. It does not go to Lou or anyone else. It goes directly to Jerry. So support him, help him out. But as we are, uh, we don't, we are really tight on time. Wow. Uh, let me, this other guy says he just parked. I will be ready. But when, when will you be ready? You'll be ready when? After we're and, recording. Potentially. And where did he park? <laughs> let me see. There's a lot of questions here. Let me make sure. <laughs> let me see if this person is online. And no, they are not yet. Have you guys talked before? Have you guys been on the air together before? I don't think no, we have. No, this 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 would be the uh, initial encounter. Yeah, that's it. What do you think of Pandemonium Theater so far, Jerry? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. be honest, it's great, man. It's yeah. great. <laughs> no, I'll tell you uh, honestly. I'm on. Did I mention that great. his GoFundMe but... is a scam? <laughs> Did I mention you should know what money? It's great, man. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, can we can we get a blurb here? Pandemonium Theater is the audio equivalent of a bottle of piss. <laughs> there you go. I'm still trying to figure it out. Really? Okay. <laughs> what is that? I think we're going to run with that. All right. This other guy is still not here. Let me add this person. And uh, hold on. This is another person who uh, I believe is on standby. Adding him now. Add person. Uh, Jerry, I don't think you've met this person. I'm not sure if you've met this person. Let's let's see what he has to say here. Hey, doing wrestling fans. It's Wednesday, November 21st. Here on the Wrestling Hot Seat is Dominic. Yeah, in a couple of minutes, we'll talk about that piece of shit that was supposed to be called SmackDown. (laughs) McMahon should be smacked around a little bit for doing a show like that. Really. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Today's wrestler's birthdays: Wild Samoan Alpha. We got Johnny Rich, the franchise Shane Douglas, Dynamite D, Cassidy Riley, who's now in uh, uh, Ring Warriors, um, C.O.C. Kikuchi, former announcer Mike Aldrin, Mickey and Bree, the Bella Twins. Um, let's see. Um, Miss Sinful. Okay. Former guy from WCW, Jerry Flynn. Oh. I remember him. I used to like him, too. Um, oh, yes. Let's see. Celebrities. The gorgeous Marlo Thomas. Ken Griffey Jr. <laughs> Bjork. Um, Nicolette Sheridan. Goldie Horn, Dan Blocker from Bonanza, who I thought would have been, made a great wrestler. Horse Cartwright. Uh, We also got baseball legend Stan Musial and 
Troy Aikman and Charles Corwin. You know who Charles Corwin is? No. Huh? I'm sorry. Uh-uh. Carlos, the Mambo teacher from the Honeymooners. Oh, Carlos says she can do the Mambo. Well, it makes a world of difference. For a minute there, I didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> Everybody out. Wow, thanks One for the One of the funniest the Honeymooners ever. Why, I got to have a cold <laughs> supper because you're doing this? It's like he's really My here. wife, uh, she's uh, here? No, Mrs. Manicani, Why? I don't know. Everything about her is a mambo. She go like this. She go like that. She knocked the dishes all off the table. Yeah. She's wow. driving me crazy. Well, Dominic's going to do the anyway, whole 39. The, <laughs> the, the day in wrestling history. <laughs> you want a mambo? I was teaching you to do the mambo. You're going to be doing a mambo on the moon. Anyway, <laughs> the, the day in wrestling history, November 21st, 1967. Bronco Lubitsch and Aldo Bongi defeated Les Welch and Buddy Fuller in Tampa, Florida oh, wow. to win the NWA Southern Tag Team titles. Okay? Yeah. Uh, another birthday, Ronnie Johnson from the group <laughs> War. Remember that great band back in the day, War? Um, the quote, Dennis and Sunset Park got it, nailed it. Robert in Atlanta got it, nailed it. Nailed it. El Fabuloso Blondie in Puerto Rico was none other than Ken Timms. Okay. The quote for today, Captain Ivan's going to get this one. I know it. Captain Ivan, wow, he's still Power, alive. condition, condition, condition. <laughs> Power, condition, condition. And that's all I'm going to say is just that. Okay, tournament match. Yeah, what's the tournament? Eddie Guerrero, the winner over Y2J, Chris Jericho, and that is the tournament final. What was the tournament? New tournament today. Oh. Mm. This is called Old School Old School Tag Teams. Oh, my goodness, God Almighty. Let's see. Deceased, deceased. Both of these are deceased. One of these guys is deceased. Both of these are gone. Are they eliminated? <laughs> I know. They don't do it up like this no more. Tom, this is a fucking good one, as usual. G.J. <laughs> Strongbow and Sonny King taking on Black Gordman and the Great Goliath. Oh, forget it. And we got a draw between Dean Ambrose and Tommy Dreamer, so I'll put that up. One more day for you to vote on that. Is that a different tournament? Now let's go to fucking SmackDown, I, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to fucking go there, but we are anyway. Ah, uh, we there. Get your ticket. The train's pulling out of the fucking station. Unfortunately, <laughs> it ain't the whole train. <laughs> Charlotte Flair opens up the show with a promo talking about Ronda Rousey. And then Paige comes out. Talks about Charlotte Flair's actions attacking the referees at the pay-per-view. Finds her $100,000. Whoop-de-doo. That's not a real fucking fine. <laughs> anyway, out comes the Iconics. The business is a work. Who are fucking annoying as hell. Whoever thought two hot women could be fucking annoying with them voices. It's like, shut up already. Please. Hold up fucking cue cards. Anyway, Billy Kay and Peyton Royce, they say they are Paige's favorites. 
and Charlotte gets in the face of the Iconics. Paige says, I don't know where you got that idea from. And Charlotte issues an open challenge. And it's Billy Kay taking the challenge. Charlotte defeats Billy Kay with Peyton Royce in her corner. Peyton kept interfering, and Charlotte wants another match. So then Charlotte defeated Peyton Royce with Billy Kay in her corner on a disqualification when Billy Kay kept getting involved. Okay? And there was an attempt of an aftermatch attack, but Charlotte beat down both of the Iconics. My God almighty. One of them's hair is so fucking black, it looks like patent leather. Looks like she's got heavy hair. Maybe that's why she talks like that. Her hair is too heavy. Yellow again, everybody. Backstage, we got comments from Rey Mysterio Jr. talking about Randy Orton. And now we got Miz TV. Miz introduces Shane McMahon. Miz talks about Survivor Series, Crown Jewel. He said he's two-thirds the best. Shane is one-third the best. And he suggests a tag team, Miz and Shane. Shane is walking like he's half-crippled because what stuff he does shouldn't be done by somebody that's a non-fucking wrestler. And he says, I don't know about teaming up. He says, come on, we can win. So... Out comes a team called the Bryant Brothers, okay? Wayne and Dane. Can we get any fucking stupider, folks? Wayne is a black guy, and Dane is a white guy. And Corey Graves says, look at these two. They must be identical twins. They look so much alike. Well, these, I don't know who the fuck they were. They defeated Miz and Shane McMahon. Shane never even got in the match. Miz got pinned, and he's sitting there with a dumbfounded look on his face like, oh, shit, I got pinned. Yeah, you're busy laughing with Shane. Shane thinks it's hysterical. You're a dick. Shane don't belong in a ring, and I'm glad these two kids won, whoever they are. Hmm. Backstage, new... And I'm going to tap out on Dominic right there. And uh, we have yeah. to go in a second, but Scott Bowden joined in the midst of all that. And uh, thanks for making a cameo oh, here, buddy. God. Yeah, what the hell is going on? That was that was a wrestling hot seat with Dominic Valente. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad that I chimed in to uh, hear that critique. Hey, before we say goodbye, say hello to Lou and Jerry Gray. Hey, the, the Gray hey, brothers. Scott. <laughs> How's it going, Jerry? <laughs> Lou and Jerry Gray. There you go. Lou and Jerry Gray. All right. There, okay, there cool. you go. Yeah. Right. Uh I feel like I feel like I feel like I uh like there was a party down the hall that I'm assuming I was invited to, so I just walked in, but I really wasn't. I'll tell you what, before before you go, <laughs> before you go, I'll show you the party that you missed real quick for just a second. Okay. Hey, doing wrestling fans? It's Wednesday, November twenty-first. Here on a wrestling hot seat this is Dominic. Oh. Yeah, in a couple of minutes we'll talk about that piece of shit that was supposed to be called SmackDown. 
See, that's what <laughs> you missed. That was the part of you missed. Uh, you, you hear Jerry yeah, there? That's yeah. the most pain I've ever heard from Jerry all the time he's been on the <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me long. For, it makes me long for the Randy Hills podcast. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's not go crazy. But uh, anyway, guys, uh, I got to wrap things up for this <laughs> Easter egg. Uh, everyone, say goodbye. Adios. <laughs> <laughs> Hello again, everybody. Oh, you meant bye bye. You from Scott Bowden? From, uh, well, wait a minute. I am Scott Bowden. Hang on a second. I swear to God, I haven't been drinking. Yet. <laughs> For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. Bye bye. We'll see you next week, everybody.